Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday, January 16, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. This is about as cold a weekend as I can remember. Uh, I went to the beach Friday afternoon and sat around a fire <laughs> on our wrist. Which is what you suggested. My good jeans got smoky, man. Is that what happened? I sat around the fire all weekend and my good jeans got real smoky. I'm feeling now so. You didn't um, go on the beach. I didn't did go you? on the beach. Yeah. No, not at all. Hey, I got a buddy of mine um, who has a condo at the beach, and he has a nephew who has two young children, five and three. They're, they're little girls. So um, my buddy's telling me the story that he um, he says, hey, if you want to carry your daughters, some of these married, if you want to carry your daughters to the beach, let me know nobody's at the condo this weekend. And obviously he took him up on the offer. So he tells his little girls Thursday afternoon, hey, we're going to the beach this weekend. They ran to their bedrooms and grabbed their bathing suits, <laughs> to which my friend said, hey, we're not, you don't need your bathing suits. And the little girl said, we going naked? Because, <laughs> I mean, to them, the beach oh, right. is the beach. Right. Is the beach. So, what else do you uh, do at the beach? Yeah, the, the, the innocent Go beauty the beach. of childhood, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it. You're talking about restaurants. and No, we don't, we don't, we, we, the beach is the beach yeah. is the beach. Said so they had like handfuls of bathing suits <laughs> orange and yellow and green and blue and just mismatched oh, one to the other uh you don't need your bathing suits we're going naked uh, <laughs> well this ain't the south of france or some of the other um um some of the other ritzy places that allow for um for nude sunbathing 843-661-0937 is our number um not a lot of sports to talk about the national football league began its playoff uh this weekend uh, and other than Jacksonville having a big comeback against San, uh, excuse me, the Chargers. I turned away from that one at the wrong time. It was 27 nothing. I said, oh, this one's done. And I flipped over to watch On Patrol Live. And then I looked and I said, oh, wait a minute. Come back. I didn't watch a bit of it. I mean, I watched a little bit of San. Well, I, I watched about all of San Francisco. And um, who'd they play? That's how much. Uh, you know, anyway, anyway, I watched San Francisco play earlier on Saturday. They play. I watched um, the Bengals play last night until I went to bed, and the Cowboys and Buccaneers um, play tonight. But um, I mean, I'm interested, just not as interested in the National Football League as I am. Uh, now, I did go yesterday at lunch, and as I was leaving the place I frequent uh, in, in the Litchfield Pauley's Island areas, I was leaving the. Um, the freeholders were making their way into the restaurant. One had a giant shirt and hat. The other had, I mean, it's like NFL Grand Central mm -hmm. Station. Um, there are more people from Ohio living in Horry County than currently residing in Ohio. I'm convinced of that. I mean, the majority of people have left Ohio, moved to Horry County. Um, I think I read the largest Buckeye club outside the state of Ohio is in um, or the second largest. But I can remember that being a thing for a long time. I mean, we used to joke around. I, I I grew up in Ohio, lived here, and then I can remember not long after I got here, people would joke around and say, "Well, I hope the last person in Ohio turned the lights off on their way out." Yeah, but but, but once again, I think we overstated that just because we were, you know, the, these northern aggressors were making their way down here in record numbers, and I mean, we knew it, but but not to the extent now. I mean, it, it's absurd now. Uh, it's not absurd, <laughs> but it's just a reality. Um, you know, I think we're going to be doubly surprised when we do the census in 2030 and how many people left some of the COVID restricted states to come to places that weren't as restrictive about what you can do and when you can do it and how you can do it. I mean, we were we were upset as Southerners, freedom loving Southerners in particular, 
at how the um the COVID restrictions applied. Um, but it was nothing like it was in some of the um the more liberally governed um states. And and I think you're going to be just blown away in 2030 at how many people have made their way to the Carolinas, to Florida, um, Tennessee is another fast growing state. Uh, there's just a mass migration, Rev, of people mm-hmm. from the Northeast and Midwest uh, making their way um, down south. It's the um, it's the weather. It's the uh, the low tax nature of the uh, the majority of southern states, and we'll see in 2030. I mean, the state of South Carolina came about a little less than a hundred thousand uh, population increase from gaining another um, congressional seat this past census. They could potentially gain two in the next census. I mean, I don't know that they will, but I mean, they could potentially. They'll gain another. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They'll they'll be a, a northern state lose a congressional district. It'll it'll um move down south. I would imagine Florida will pick up at least one, maybe two more. That's kind of one of the um one of the political stories in America today. We're not talking as much about as we probably should, and that is the shifting of population causes a shift to political influence and um and you know historically a lot of the political power has been in the Northeast. You know the big major metropolitan areas densely populated. Um, we, other than California, you look at some of the, um, some of the states that have, you know, 20, 25, 30 congressional seats, um, South Carolina will probably have eight, maybe even nine, um, by the next, uh, next census. And they don't add them, you know, they, they basically shift from one, um, column to another. So it'll be interesting uh, to watch that play itself out. I, I threatened this story last week and I didn't do it, but this morning would be a good morning since we've had some frigid temperatures over the weekend. Um, remember last week when I said that um, that Duke Energy um, had appeared before the, I want to make sure I get this um, organization, the uh, the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Um, during the real coal spell, remember Brian Braddock came on the air uh, earlier last week or mid last week and talked a little bit about the problems with the water system in, uh, in Florence and it froze up and had a lot of um, leaks and um, I mean, I you know, yeah. I, I I know a good bit about what happened there. I got sworn in to county council in two thousand four. The water system was sold in two thousand two, so it predated my time on council by a couple of years. But I can remember getting on council in Florence County and going like, "What happened here? I mean, why would you sell something as lucrative as a water system for for that price?" I mean, I'm not saying never sell it, but three point seven million dollars. Today, that water system generates somewhere in the neighborhood of $55 million. It's in excess of $50 million um, annual revenue. And um, they've just, they've done a lot of cool stuff with the revenue. As we say in the country, they've been living out of that money. You know what I mean? <laughs> they've, been, they've been living out of the yeah. revenue generated by the water. Yeah, interesting. And not invested as much in the critical maintenance required to, um, to make sure you don't have a coal spell See, and then a major, major malfunction of providing a critical, uh, a critical infrastructure. What's, what's news to me out of that, and this, I'm just a, a dumb citizen, okay? I just get my water and pay my water bill. Stay in your lane. Uh, I, I know. That's why I'm bringing this up. This is why I'm just pointing out my assumption, being a government-owned utility, right, is that it, you're paying basically the cost. There wasn't a profit attached to that. I thought, again, naively, that the water bills were adjusted to reflect basically the cost of providing water to the citizens and maybe some infrastructure and maintenance, obviously. And then there wasn't this big profit motive. They weren't profiting off the water bills. And 
that's naivete, I guess, on my part, because it is a government and it is a utility. I didn't think they were in the profit business. Well, I'm not saying they're in the profit business, but it generates a profit. Well, what are I mean, they doing no with the money? It. Well, I mean, that's a good question. You know, and I don't think there's clarity there. Um, once again, purchased the water system for $3.7 million. Now, now, they'll argue there were some um, some problems the county had with the way they were running the pro- the, the order system. And, I, yeah, I mean, th- there's some truth there. I mean, they're, but, but to sell it for three point seven, uh, that that would have been the 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 county version, the local government version of the Louisiana Purchase would have been selling the uh, the countywide, or excuse me, the um, that wasn't countywide, the um, the system that belonged to the county for three point seven million dollars. Now, when merged with the city's water department, generates revenue in excess of fifty million dollars. And um, of the fifty million, I don't know the answer to this. How much was being spent on critical maintenance? I mean, that's the question that I don't know the answer to. I'm not privileged to that information. Um, I mean, it's, it's got to be out there somewhere. I mean, there's got to be a, um, a line item somewhere in a budget that says we took X percentage of revenue generated by the water and reinvested in our critical maintenance. Um, I hope. I hope it would be a substantial um, number, right. but it doesn't appear to be a substantial number at all because it appears to me some of the expenses of what I'll call quality of life amenities. And I'm not against libraries and, and, and some of these other, I mean, I do think there's a, an element to quality of life that does enhance a community, adds to its value. I mean, I think the arts, you know, the recreation, um, some of the other infrastructure, um, not critical, not necessary, but but quality of life is a component, no question about it. And I think to um to fund some of those programs and partnerships, and I'm talking about the um the, the city county partnership with the Bruce Lee Foundation on a museum, on a performing arts center with the university. I mean, you know, the collaborative efforts. I mean, I think you you're nodding your head. I mean, you agree there's something there. Absolutely. But but the water has to work even when it's cold. And if you, if you paid 3.7 million dollars for a water system. You're not you're not heavily invested on the front end. It generates north of fifty million dollars a year annually in revenue. But there's just somebody's not done a good job of managing or prioritizing the maintenance part of that. Why does that matter? Because that was cold weather related, and um, and Duke Energy executives appeared a couple of weeks ago during the cold just after the cold snap. They were summoned to the uh, North Carolina General Assembly, and they appeared before the um, the North Carolina, North Carolina Utilities Commission, which is appointed by the North Carolina General Assembly. Um, and they were talking about areas in North and South Carolina uh, were without power during what we'll, you and I will call a bitter cold snap, um, led up to, that would have been the Christmas holiday weekend. Yeah, well, Christmas mm-hmm. holiday weekend. Sure. Um, they appeared the Tuesday after... Um, that but yeah, that'd been a Tuesday after Christmas, and um, according to some of the testimony by the North Carolina Utilities Commission, um, there there were about three hundred thousand people without power. Remember the wind blew a good bit on the front end, kind of blew the cold cold weather in. But um, but during the day of December twenty third, uh, and then we had a severe cold snap immediately following um, that. So um. So I want to quote Julie Jansen. She's executive vice president and CEO of Duke Energy Carolinas. Now, I mean, I think this is appropriate. I don't. Want, I want to express how sorry this is her appearing before the um, the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Um, here's her quote. I want to express how sorry we are for what our customers experienced. 
Winter Storm Elliott was an extremely powerful event with a unique confluence of high winds, extreme temperature drops, and other conditions that forced us to curtail power as a last resort. Now, curtailing power is imposing blackouts, right? No, but they, you don't yeah. like the word blackout. Why don't you like the word blackout? That's what the conservatives said. You better be careful about now. You know what I mean? You start Cur- weaning, curtailing power. Yeah, you start you start weaning yourself out some of that evil fossil fuel. That's pretty creative. And the next thing you know, you're curtailing power. But that's dog whistle for um, blackouts. It doesn't sound as Fox Newsy when you say curtailing power as it does rolling um, blackouts. Um, she continues. Um, and once again, we know what a rolling blackout is. But that's when a utility uh, intentionally cuts power uh, to a particular era area in order to do what? In order to save energy. They're not generating the capacity. Um, the entire grid would collapse if they had to continue to try and provide power to everybody who needs it at that particular time. She kept on. Um, the power that we purchased did not show up. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Therefore, we were confronted with hard truth that our energy capacity would soon be eclipsed by our demand. Um, the purchase power didn't show up because nearby states, South Carolina, Virginia, um, were experiencing some of the same conditions. Um, that would have been pretty predictable as far as I'm concerned, right? I mean, if it's cold in North Carolina statewide, it's pretty good chance it's cold in South Carolina mm-hmm. statewide. Pretty good chance it's cold in Virginia statewide. So when they when they basically reached out to some of the neighboring states and said, hey, we're, we're in kind of a fix here, we need more power. Um, the neighboring state said, we don't have much excess to spare. Supply and demand. Um, here's what I found very interesting. Um, they talk about the nuclear fleet. Duke Energy's nuclear fleet was re- reliable during the storm. That's according to Preston Gillespie. He's Duke Energy's executive vice president and chief generation officer. But, but here's what I think is so interesting. When, when they say that Duke Energy's nuclear fleet was reliable, or as George Bush says, nuclear, uh, was reliable, but solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred just before sunrise. Now, now, hold on to that for just a second now. I mean, I don't have a degree in anything. I mean, I've told you before, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. That's the one sentence in the article I doubly highlighted. Mm-hmm. I highlighted and put some um, parentheses around it. Let me read it again. Duke Energy's nuclear fleet was reliable, but solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred before sunrise. When is it normally coldest? <laughs> right before I mean, sunrise. when do we normally yeah. have the coldest temperatures? Overnight. Right as darkest before dawn. Yep. It's coldest right before sunrise. Look at some of the, um. I mean, you've seen some of the graphs and charts of weather. You know, it's going to be this degree at this, you know, hour. It's going to be that degree at that hour. So basically, the solar power that they had calculated um, into the equation just was not there. Why? Because the damn sun right. wasn't shining. And, and is, is that a surprise that solar doesn't work at night, well, overnight? I mean, it, no, of course it isn't a surprise. But they're, <laughs> even you know, I would know that. They bought into this, you know, green energy and reliable, excuse me, renewable energy. And I have too. I mean, I'll be honest. Technology leads me to believe that there's going to be a, um, a myriad of ways to generate electricity and power. And I mean, if we can do that, if we can kind of um, attack it from different angles, but, but, you know, the reason they had to have rolling blackouts, curtailing power, uh, in their words, was because it got really, really cold. You ready? Here's G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. It got real cold right before daylight. 
and there was no solar power available. So all the energy generated was uh, by nuclear, their nuclear fleet. Uh, they still got some old coal generating facilities with scrubbers and uh, they, they closed down some of the older coal generating plants. They've kept open some of the newer ones, the scrubbers and, and uh, I guess the more modern and, and more efficient and more clean burning coal facilities. But the majority of their energy was generated by nuclear. They did depend uh, to some degree on, um, on solar power. But when the sun's not shining and it's very, very cold, the only option they had available to them was to basically say, um, we're going to black out here uh, for 45 minutes, black out over there for 45 minutes. And, um, and does that mean, I mean, I read into that and again, you know, not, not very smart in these issues or whatever, but you know, they either miscalculated or relied too heavily on solar, or there may just be a little aggressive in their, their converting to solar plan. And as a result, they couldn't meet the demand. Well, I mean, I don't know how challenged they were. I don't know how, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a transcript of what happened. Um, I just know when I read the article and it was in the, um, the, the Charlotte observer, when I read the article about what happened at the North Carolina Utilities Commission, uh, I kept reading and I kept reading and I kept reading and I kept reading and I finally got to the part where she basically said that the um, there were certain aspects of their generating grid that were very reliable. And she talked a little bit about coal, nuclear in particular. I mean, she was talking about how invested they are in nuclear, how reliable that was. But when asked a little bit about solar generation, she said that that was un that the solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred before sunrise. Peak demand occurred before sunrise. Well, I mean, if if your solar generation is there to supplement some of the um some of the situations you have regarding peak demand, I mean, you got to believe in a cold event, right? I mean, we're talking about cold weather. Um, that's going to be right before dawn, and there is no sun, therefore there is no solar generation. I mean, there, there's some storing of energy. I mean, we know this. I mean, there, there's a, um, I mean, a battery doesn't make electricity. What does it do? It stores electricity. It stores energy. It store, stores power. I just thought it was kind of an, um, um, I mean, it's almost incriminating. And I'm not blaming the lady. I'm not blaming Preston at Duke Energy. But um, I actually reached out to a couple of buddies of mine in that, um, I mean, it's, it's Pity Electric, you know, who are very, have been very friendly to this show. And um, they were very familiar with the situation and some of these companies have bought into green energy. They've invested heavily in green energy um, at the, at the expense of more traditional ways of generating electricity. So when I was thinking about, you know, cold weather over the weekend, we didn't get to a place that we did that weekend, but we will again. I mean, we absolutely will again. I mean, sooner or later, we'll have another weather event a weekend long, four days long as we did um, then um, what have they done to shore up some of the, um, the the dependency on solar energy in a period of time when it's, I mean, it, anybody knows this. When is it cold? When, when the sun's not out. I mean, you know, the, the sun warms everything up. And, um, <laughs> and you know, when, when the sun's not shining, you have rolling blackouts if you're depending on, on solar electricity. So there, there's a kind of a, a story to get us, um, no pun intended here, ready, warmed up <laughs> for the week. 843-661-0937. Cold we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning. Uh, on this uh, Duke Energy thing. Ken, I called you in April 
2021 concerning uh, a brochure that I got about a virtual hearing uh, with the with the Duke Energy and a request for the commission to approve DEP proposed solar choice metering riders and rate schedules, and it says. Uh, that it's collectively the solar choice tariffs as specifically required by Act 62 and agreed to be a settlement with certain clean energy advocates. It was on the docket. There were certain people that could testify for three minutes virtually, but the commission would not uh answer they said specifically that the commission could not answer my question to you at that time was what is act 62 and who went into agreement with certain clean energy advocates and i in turn got no answer so i called my senator i didn't get an answer from him i called the state government didn't get an answer from them. I called the representative for this area, didn't get an answer from him. So my question still is, what was Act 62 and who actually went into agreement with certain clean energy advocates? And this rate schedule that they attached to it would penalize anyone on fossil fuel and give breaks to anyone that signed up for solar. So that was back then, 2021, and nobody was able to attend in person. No one was able to give a three-minute testimony without prior approval. So, you know, and the commission couldn't answer anything. They would not let you, they would not, answer anything so we knew about this but we couldn't get anything done because we had no one that could tell us what was going on thank you thank you daphne i remember that well i mean i remember daphne inquiring got something in the mail i think another couple of folks got things in the mail um i mean i didn't go down the trail as hard as she did but i did try to google some um i mean i you know duke energy north carolina utilities commission you know meeting um, what, what, what Daphne's basically arguing is probably true. Um, I can't get the answer. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, <laughs> some of you are better investigators than I am. I'm decent at this, but, um, but, but the Duke energy executives, uh, when, when they appeared last month before the, uh, North Carolina utilities commission, they were apologetic, um, because there were thousands of people in North Carolina and South Carolina that were, uh, without power during this bitter cold snap. Once again, curtailing power means imposing rolling blackouts. But the rolling blackout sounds too Fox Newsy. <laughs> curtailing power sounds a lot more mainstream. Um, and and they, they basically do that. Um, they intentionally cut power in particular areas, I, I guess, to prevent the entire grid from going, you know, offline. Uh, there's only so much capacity there. Now, now, here's what I don't know, and here's what I'll not um, I mean, I'll level with you. I don't have any idea how to get the answer to this. Is Was the problem created 
in North and South Carolina over the Christmas holidays all about selling your soul. Here I am being a, a provocative radio show host to, um, to solar energy, to renewable energy at the expense of dependable energy. I don't know that. I mean, I don't have any idea how to figure that out. Um, the, the two people I know in that sector believe we're all on to something when we kind of explore that avenue or go down that road. But I don't have any idea. All I know is this. Um, 300,000 people were without power at some point in time during um, sub-freezing temperatures. I mean, the temperature was, what, 15, 16, 18 degrees yep. for an extended period of time? I don't know what it was in North Carolina. I don't have any idea what the weather was. I mean, you got to believe they're a little further from the equator than we are. Uh, you got to believe they're a little further north. Therefore, it's probably a little bit colder in, uh, in some areas of North Carolina than in South Carolina. But we had an average temperature a couple of days of 30 degrees, 32, 33 degrees. It's not the cold snap. I mean, it's the, the, the elongated period of cold weather that causes the stress to the, uh, to the system, to the grid. But, um, but, but you know, what, I mean, it's, her words, not mine. The power that we purchased did not show up. Therefore, we were confronted with the hard truth that our energy capacity would soon be eclipsed by our demand. But those are her words. Uh, that, that is Justin Bowman appearing before the uh, North Carolina Utilities Commission. Uh, Preston Gillespie follows up by saying that the nuclear fleet was reliable during the cold snap, um, but solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred before sunrise. Duh is my answer um, to that. But, but once again, I don't have any idea why that was the case. Is there are they producing less energy via fossil fuels? Is Duke Energy? This would be a fair question. Is Duke Energy today less dependent or less? Is is Duke Energy generating less percentage of its power via fossil fuel today than they were? You know, and is is that the reason we had a rolling blackout? Now, some of the green energy advocates will will, will kind of say, no way, you can't answer that question the way it's supposed to be answered. And this goes back to really some of the um the criticism I've levied against government in general. And I'm talking about government in California, government in Minnesota, government in New York. I mean, we, we've got to address energy and debt. I mean, if our energy slash debt um, solutions aren't sound, we're going to live in an inferior nation moving forward. We just are. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We can debate the bridges. You know, we can debate the water systems in the city and how much money you're allowed to invest or reinvest back into critical maintenance or not. But I'm telling you, as a nation, we better get our energy policy sound. It better be principled. It better be um, coherent and reasonable. And we better deal with our debt. Now, now Kevin McCarthy, to his credit, I don't know if you saw this or not, on yesterday morning's um, kind of the round, you know, the meet the press and face the nation and this week with George Stephanopoulos and the Fox show, uh, that Chris Wallace formerly hosted. I think it's um, Shannon Bream now, if I'm not mistaken. She's hosting that show. That was an okay job. Um, not good, but okay. Uh, but anyway, um, McCarthy was on a couple of those shows, and he said that, um, you know, they intended to cut spending. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it, 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 would be, it would be going back to 2022 um, budget levels. And that would cut about $75 million, $75 billion, from the 800 and what 57 billion defense budget so for the first time in a long time one of what i'd call the mainstream republican leadership is agreeing to cut spending now where we go from here don't have any idea um it'll probably get vetoed when it probably won't make its way through the senate but but the house seems to be committed 
And and this is where the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill should frustrate us all. Um, there's not a lot they can do until September. I mean, the, um, the 18 Republicans that went along with the That's Democrats ridiculous. basically gave carte blanche to the Democrats to do whatever it is Terrible. they choose to do um, all the way until September. So we're kind of cruising along here. Um, so, you know, just get on with the investigations mm. is what I'd say. If the budget is kind of already set because of the $1.7 trillion omnibus, then let's get on to the um, to the investigative nature of the House. I'm glad you watched the Sunday program, so I don't have to. The only thing I heard was, I guess, a back and forth between Chuck Todd and, is it Senator Ron Johnson? Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, when Todd basically, I mean, Johnson, I mean, Todd doesn't have Republicans on to interview. He has Republicans on to argue with. And he, and right. he basically, I mean, he kind of got a little bit argumentative toward the end when he said, you know, that um, I've never seen, you know, I've looked up and down. I mean, he sounded like a hack's what he did when Todd said it's not against the law to, to, you know, to make bank on your family name. I mean, in essence, that's what he's right. arguing. Well, I mean, that's a shallow position. I mean, if, if they're arguing that and they are, I mean, they're running defense for the Biden crime family. And that's the argument they're making. It's not against the law to um to basically you know profiteer and then and you know and on your fam whatever that family name is and biden would be the name in this case let's go to the phone bill and sumter listening to wdxy good morning bill hey good morning fellas hey ken I'll, if the solar panels were so problematic during this one cold snap i can't tell you how many that i i deliver uh, garbage boxes okay the giant ones for construction sites I cannot tell you how many solar farms I'm going to these days between, uh, let's say, Bishopville and Lake City, Hartsville. I mean, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how huge they're making these things. They're hiding them behind the tree lines. You know, they're buying up all this farmland that's around here. People better start waking up and paying attention to what's going on with this, man, because if they're problematic now with the amount that they're putting in, it's, it's just going to get worse. Thank you. Appreciate the call. The point I'm making, I don't know if I'm being clear about it, I'm not opposed to solar panels at all but but are we taking fossil fuel generated power offline and replacing it by less dependable solar energy I mean, that's the point i'd love to know and i don't know how to get duke to answer that question i don't know if duke can give an answer uh, i don't know if they're you know i mean uh, sure they can give an answer to that but but when, when they when they install these solar panels and, and build these solar farms are they taking you know um energy offline is this is this an additional energy source or is this to replace some of the um, some of the energy source traditionally provided by uh, fossil fuel and I guess nuclear to some degree? Don't know the answer to that. Have no idea how to find the answer to that unless we could reach out to Duke Energy and you know them get someone on this show that could provide um, that sort of answer. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Kid. What's the number one role? What's one of the biggest roles of trees? You know, here environmentalists are always talking about trees, right? And how what do trees do? They take the CO2 out of there, isn't that right? That's correct. Okay. Well, now, just like the previous caller said, you see all of this land covered with these solar panels. Well, what grows, what grows there? Nothing. Nothing. It's just like the damn electric cars. These, 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 these leftist, fascist, godless Democrats tell us that leftist cars, I mean, leftist, yeah, leftist cars or electric cars are good for the environment, right? But then they leave out the front end where they do all of the mining and all of the other stuff to get it there. And then the fact that the cars are generally run on coal power plants. 
Now they tell us that solar is clean energy. But at the same time, the solar panels that are producing the solar power power that's supposed to give you clean energy are destroying the environment. You know, say that out loud like you like to say. And I'll tell you another thing, I'm, you know, I'm more determined that, I, that, that those guys that found the documents for Biden, they weren't covering their butt. They went over there for the sole purpose to get those documents to get Biden out. And I think that what they're going to do is, is they're going to get on this moral high horse and say, look how good we are. We turned in our old president for him making the mistakes and breaking the law with these classified documents, especially since he was vice president and has this power to declassify. But they will turn it on Trump, too. And tell the Republicans they can't run Trump for the very same reason. And also, I was listening over the weekend, and I saw Ice Cube and some of these other guys that we would probably consider militant. And they were all talking about the jab. They called it a jab, and they called it the pandemic, not the pandemic. So these are black guys that you would generally think of as Democrat, right? But they're sitting around right now having serious questions about the whole pandemic, the whole jab, and they're, they're going to be the ones. These, some of these black entertainers are going to be the ones that call out the NFL, the NBA, and the pharmaceutical corporations for killing all these black athletes. Because who, who are the majority of athletes in the NFL? Black. Who are going to be the ones that are going to be dying of these heart attacks? Black athletes. So here you got the government again. Killing black people, brother. Thank you, Breeze. 843-661-0937. Take a break on an early cold Monday morning. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Some of this is above my ability to comprehend, but and I know these systems are very complex and people have figured out how to make these power systems work and to meet the demand. But somebody don't or think, not. Well, or nor exactly. Somebody, don't you think? would have had to make the decision to set up the balance. In other words, here's the amount of power we're going to we're going to rely on solar for this amount, we're going to rely on traditional means for this amount, and when we do this, uh, it will we'll be able to provide reliable power for the customers. And in this case, of course, they weren't able to provide that. Okay, what if someone has a liability claim? What what if someone says, "Hey, because of the disruption of power, I mean, you've got you've got um, d- disruption insurance. I mean, there, there's insurance policies you can buy." If um if a hurricane strikes your business and you're out of business for two weeks, the inability to cash flow and generate revenue. I mean, there's there's disruption insurance out there. Um, here's here's my question. Don't know the answer to this, but here's a question that I think of to begin with. Okay, let's say there's a liability claim against Duke Energy. Let's say you run a business. Duke Energy decides to turn your power off. I understand the liability claim probably has coverage for. I mean, Duke would probably say that there's an exemption for a natural disaster. But this was not a natural disaster. Duke chose to turn the power off. Why did they choose to turn the power off? Because as you just said, somebody made a calculation that it could provide uh, dependable energy with this much solar power, with this much renewable, with this much less coal, this much less nuclear. Um, I got to believe that there's probably a lawsuit or two or a hundred pending somewhere (laughs) about liability claims. But because when I'm getting into business here now for a second, because once again, if you run a business and you've got disruption insurance, um, it you know the insurance company will. I mean, it, it's get complicated. 
I'll tell you this. When they drew some of the COVID legislation, they basically, the insurance companies got real nervous about, hey, if you do all this social distancing and shut down all these businesses, they're going to come back on us because they've got disruption of service, you know, disruption insurance. And, and the government basically exempted the insurance companies. It's pretty bizarre, but they did. Well, insurance companies have a lot of lobbyists, but the insurance companies had some exemption. They had no liability to the government basically shutting down restaurants, hair salons. Uh, a restaurant probably has disruption insurance, but, but the government gave the insurance company some sort of exemption, kind of an inside deal. But let's go to um to Duke Energy. Um, in, in the company service contract, uh, does it, I mean, I would imagine it, produ- it protects Duke from liability in the event of a weather emergency, but does it when they choose, I mean, they're an intentional outage. I mean, a rolling blackout, curtailing power, that's an intentional outage. I don't have any idea what the answer to that question is, but that's where I would explore. If I'm running a business and Duke Energy cuts my power off, and I go to my insurance company and say, look, I mean, they cut my power off for a day. Now, I know it's 45 minutes or an hour, but what if you're running one of these um, huge in- industries? And they probably worked hand in hand. Once again, I'm speculating. I don't know the answer to this, but there's a, there, there's a company service contract that you have with your power provider. And if you're an industrial company, I mean, if you're an industrial customer or a business customer or commercial customer, um, what is in that company service contract? I mean, I, I would imagine, once again, it probably protects Duke from liability uh, due to some natural weather event. But does the contract create immunity for them in the event that they intentionally cut your power off? Do they have liability? I, I would imagine there'll be some, you know, debate, um, legal matter as a result of. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. A cold Monday morning, real cold weekend that kind of led me down the road of um, going back and looking at the um, the story about Duke Energy and them apologizing to the um, to the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Daphne brought, and I remember Daphne asking about that uh, a couple of years back about, you know, what is this bill? I don't have any idea what that bill is. I do know or I think that the... Um, the power companies are being encouraged by the government to invest in green energy. Hmm. You don't say. Well, I mean, we, we know that to be true. Now, what those deals look like, I don't have any idea. Uh, it all began with Solyndra. Remember the story about Solyndra oh, yeah. and the um, the investment gone bad. But um, Well, as usual, when something like this happens, if you're a customer and you're effective, you're affected, I mean, you want to blame somebody. I mean, who is to blame? I mean, in that scenario, you could follow it all the way to the government. The government force potentially, you know, we're just speculating here, but the government forces um, things onto utility providers, encouraging them to switch to an energy source that is not reliable at a critical time of need. Well, I mean, okay, who's liable? Right? I mean, if, if, if Duke Energy agrees that this is an area we can provide reliable, dependable electricity, we can debate affordable I mean, affordable is, right. you know, it's in the eyes of the beholder, so to speak. Um, you know, increase in rates and, um, you know, a kilowatt costs more today than it did. And uh, uh, Anyway, that that's, you know, the grid costs X number of dollars to, to, um, to operate and maintain. Here's my point. It's not the last time we're going to have widespread severe coal and high demand. I mean, it's not. Um, we'll probably have it again before the end of the year. Um, some people in North Carolina went without power 24 hours. I mean, they ran backup generators. Um, Duke Energy's apologized to these people. Okay, that's nice. 
that's mighty um, decent of you to apologize to the people that you were supposed to provide dependable, affordable power to. Why did we have rolling blackouts? That's the point I'm trying to make. Why did we not? Why was Duke Energy, when we had this widespread cold, why was Duke Energy um, not allowed to meet the high demand for the customers of which they've um, obligated themselves to um to take care of the power needs of the people in, I mean, I read an article in Raleigh, WRAL News has an article here about it's kind of interesting that Duke is basically, um, remember we talked about liability a second ago, Duke is denying any claim. I mean, they're basically saying, there's a debate, Rev, once again, disruption insurance. Hold on to that for a second. Okay, if a, if a hurricane comes and tears down all the power lines, nothing Duke can do about that. N- nothing anybody can do about that. I mean, they, you know, that's why disruption insurance comes in. But that didn't happen. I mean, the weather didn't cause the, um, the, the power lines to snap or the poles to be turned or, or um, broken in half. Duke decided that because of the widespread coal um, and the high demand, they were going to turn some customers off because it would have um, overloaded the grid. That's a decision they made. But, but here's the story that we don't know the answer to. Why is that where they were? I mean, why, why all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but why did Duke catch itself not being able to meet the high demand? Is it because the government has incentivized investment in renewable energies at the expense of traditional ways of providing and generating power? I don't know the answer to that. don't have any idea about the answer to that. But that's a question that I think is worth exploring. And if you're a business and you were without power 24 hours because Duke decided to cut your power off, because, once again, of high demand and their inability to meet that high demand, who's liable for that? I mean, is there a liability proviso or provision here? I got to believe in the service agreement it says, look, if a storm tears down all the lines, I mean, we'll, we'll do the best we can to get it back up, but we're not liable for you not having power. But when Duke chooses to cut your power at your business for 24 or 48 hours because they're not able to meet the high demand because of the widespread coal, is there, is there a liability claim here? I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer to that, but I think these are questions that are very warranted and you should be considered. And I think when you go another step, why is the grid as strained as it is? Is it the development in North Carolina and South Carolina? The population increase in North Carolina and South Carolina? Um, to me, if you're going to commit to, this goes back to the old James Schofield argument. I mean, remember the late James Schofield, he would always lecture to me about um, annexation with the city. If the city's going to annex property, that they're obligated to provide first responders, right? I mean, the city's fire department, the city's, um, you know, EMS, uh, you got countywide, and there's some cross-pollination uh, there. I mean, there's some, you know, county and city take care of this. I mean, if someone's house is on fire, I mean, I want every fire truck going, county and city. But when the city annexes property, they accept the obligation and responsibility of providing some of that first responder. Do they have the assets and resources? James would all, always argue, no, but they don't. And when you aggressively annex and all of a sudden the nearest fire station for a city resident is, you know, five miles away, you begin to question whether that annexation is, is kind of, um, are you breaching some of the legalities of what you're able to annex or not? And I'm just saying, um, if Duke Energy agrees to provide power, it doesn't say unless it gets 20 degrees, you know, unless it gets 15 degrees for 48 consecutive hours. I mean, if Duke Energy in that service contract says, you know, we sign up to provide power. And once again, uh, an act of God, a natural disaster is one thing. And I got to believe that the service contracts 
you know, say disruption of service is not our fault there. But but once again, Duke Energy decided to cut the power. So is there any liability associated in this article with WRL? Duke Energy um, denied any claim. They basically said we're not on the hook. We just uh, we couldn't meet the demand because of the cold weather and um, tough stuff, so to speak. Mm. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. Um, I, I think you got a very relevant uh, questions there, but I think you got to take into account the money on this thing because Duke Power uh, likes to uh, sell power, shunt power to the Virginia grid and on up to uh, all the way to Con Ed in New York City. And they make money off of that, uh, shunning power up the coast. And I I think uh, the customers in North Carolina were sacrificed so that they could make uh, keep their profit margins up by selling electricity to uh, New York City. Now that's just uh, me. I, I haven't seen the paperwork, but I know that uh, CPNL had all kinds of contracts years ago uh, to shunt power up north. The thing is, uh, they. I believe they actually have fewer peak power turbines, these huge turbines that provide peak power at about this time of the morning, every morning. And uh, that, I think they've actually cut back on those because they burn kerosene. They're, uh, uh, they, they can uh, generate a lot of power really fast, but they're expensive to maintain and rebuild. And, uh, that and uh, fuel is also expensive for running those peak power turbines. As you know, uh, kerosene next well next to jet, jet fuel, and uh, they but the but the whole thing this scam of green energy is crazy because these all these uh, daylight um, solar cell farms are creating eyesores. It turns out they're killing the whales. We know uh, trying to develop the wind power up on the uh, off the uh, mid-Atlantic coast, and uh, in the situation that we're in, they've been killing birds, uh, especially uh, uh, ducks and eagles and even hummingbirds for uh, years now with these. Uh, uh, wind farms set along migratory paths for these birds. So I think this is this green energy. We're not ready for it. We don't have the technology yet. We, I, I think someday if we keep our country together and keep our researchers and train some researchers that we'll have some brilliant engineers that come up with solutions to these problems but we're not ready yet, and we need to maintain tried, improved, and reliable systems when it comes to keeping heat and the lights on. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And the question I'm asking is, okay, let's say, for argument's sake, I mean, let's assume, I mean, we don't know this to be true, but let's make an assumption that Duke Energy took advantage of incentives and, in, in, I don't know, incentive programs with the federal government and, and you know, a certain percentage of their electrical grid was dependent upon solar. Let's just use solar for an example, because she basically says, um, excuse me, uh, Preston Gillespie says that Duke Energy's nuclear fleet was reliable. Solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred before sunrise. So you couldn't meet peak demand because the sun wasn't shining. And when the sun doesn't shine, solar energy's not quite as uh, proficient. 
So, so did Duke Energy invest in, um, you know, solar energy at the expense of traditional generation because it was so heavily incentivized by the federal government? I mean, that's kind of an interesting question there. Um, I think I know the answer. Yes. I mean, big companies are out to do what? Make money. So if the federal government makes it more profitable to attempt to generate power and energy via a, um, a less dependable way, but, but it's renewable energy, it's green, it's, um, it's friendly to the planet, it's, you know what I mean, the climate change movement and some of the, um, some of the, um, some of the advantages that, that we've kind of incorporated into uh, that sector of the economy. Uh, it's just, I mean, once again, I don't know the answer to these questions. I did find Roy Cooper's quote. Uh, he's the governor of uh, North Carolina. He says, Duke Energy assures me North Carolina is in the clear now but I'm deeply concerned about people who lost power and who didn't get notice about rotating outages. Grateful for those who conserved energy. I've asked Duke for a complete report on what went wrong and for changes to be made. Um, that was on December 26, 2022. What does Roy Cooper know now that he didn't know then? What does the governor of North Carolina know now about what went wrong that he didn't know then? I'd love to know the answer to that. Um, don't have any idea. What was Duke Energy's um, severe weather plan? And this is severe weather. I mean, when it gets that cold, there's a peak demand. There's an increase in demand. Um, I, I guess the backup plan was we'll buy power from other places. Well, the other play, places are experimenting. I did see during some of the um, – I read during the break, and uh, this is a once-in-15-year deal. Not once-in-150-year deal, but a once-in-15-year um, cold spell. I would imagine they model – you know, as to uh, how many times in North Carolina does it get, or how many times in South Carolina does it get, you know, um, just a high temperature. What's the longest period of time that the temperature stays below freezing in South Carolina? And it would be four days once every 15 years or three and a half days once every 15 years. And I guess you model to some degree based on that on that analysis. But who's liable when something doesn't go right? And, and once again, you got... I mean, it, this gets complicated, guys. It really does. And this is kind of the, um, the the convergence of business and government. You've got disruption insurance. You've got liability claims. You've got an obligation. I mean, to me, if you accept the territory and you accept the account, let's say you've got a big um, a commercial facility, an industrial site. And you know the industrial site's a big power user, but you know the industrial site you know, needs power 24-7, no matter how cold it is. I mean, they're going to st- keep making widgets. Let's say a steel mill. I mean, a steel mill doesn't shut down when it gets cold. I mean, they've got to make steel. They've got to fill orders. They've got to keep people warm as best they can. Um, w- when Duke commits, when Duke signs up to be a provider for, um, let's say, Nucor, as an example, w- when Nucor meets with Duke and they debate, you know, what they're willing to pay for power and uh, the best rate Duke can give on power, I mean, Nucor doesn't say, hey, we understand when it gets real cold, you can't provide the power, Right. Or does Duke in the conversation say, hey, if it ever gets 15 degrees now, we're going to have a hard time, you know, keeping the lights on at Nucor. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are liabilities here. It's a little bit different. I mean, it's, it's a personal hardship when, when, a, when an individual, when you're sitting at home with your family and you get a, a text from Duke saying, hey, we're cutting the power off for two hours. I mean, they're like, that sucks. You know, but what if you're running a plant with a thousand employees? And it's 24-7. Well, it's and not, it can be dangerous for an individual. I mean, think about it, an elderly sure person. Can. And they have no heat and it is that cold. And many people in North Carolina were without power 24 hours because of the rolling. I mean, they, they, they weren't able to meet peak demand. Uh, I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to try to find out from Duke 
um, exactly what their response was to Governor Roy Cooper and what Cooper demanded from Duke as um what what, we, what didn't we know December 26th that we do know today? And um, I mean, they're going to do a real good job of trying to explain it without admitting that it was because the government incentivized green energy investment and because we made, you know, the investment in green energy, which is less dependable today. I mean, there's not the track record with solar. And it's just pretty, I mean, you don't have to be an expert to say, wow. I mean, if we're depending on solar energy and we've got a problem with cold weather and it's colder right before the sun comes up, that could be a problem. I mean, I'm not electrical engineer. I'm not. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination. Somebody had to have thought of, of that. Of course. I mean, how do you not think of that? Let's go to the phone. Russell in Florence. Good morning, Russell. How you doing this morning, Kim? Hey, Russell. How are you? And, and gentlemen, um, when you say a company like uh, Nuclear uh, Nucor, they have a, a peak power rate that they buy power from Duke Energy or whomever. When they exceed that power rate or that load capacity, they have to pay X amount extra. Well, you have backup generators that stand that, that work for that. Uh, municipalities operate the same way. As far as the renewable energy, don't know about that. But I know as a contractor, if we're out working on a line and we have a disruption, uh, we had one outside of Camden one day. Killed the power out by 95, I believe, in 527. That was a $30,000 bill for a 30-minute outage because it was happening during lunchtime. Mm. Now, and we and the company that did that, we, we were actually pulling telecommunication lines, but that power grid got knocked out by another contractor, and that bill was somewhere around $30,000. So, yeah, somebody is liable. And when, as far as conserving energy, I believe just about anybody who owns a house, unless they own a three-story house and they got millions of dollars, they're conserving energy any way they can because they have to pay a light bill. So, you know, your power company is going to operate the same way. Duke Energy, I don't know what their thing is since they came in here. Um, I could go on for an hour about Jim Rogers and how they came in over Progress Energy, but I can tell you right now, you can ride around town and I can show you dozens of, of things that just would not pass back in the 90s and the 80s. We've got poles that have been sitting there that haven't been changed out. For 10 years, um, there were wires that I personally taped two poles to get them out of the road after Hurricane Matthew. They're still sitting there taped to the pole. had not even been fixed yet. Now, I don't know what they're doing with their money. I don't know about the solar or the renewable mess, whatever you want to call it. But um, you have to pay for that energy. We can we can go uh, as renewable as you want to, but you can do it. you got to do it all at the same time. You're going to have to upgrade the power grids, number one, to deal with the electric cars and so forth, and we can do that. You're going to have to build power plants to compensate for that energy. But, uh, but as far as the solar goes, no, it's not reliable enough. It's, it's not going to be there when you need it because Mother Nature shows up. When does Mother Nature show up? Whenever she's damn well ready. Thank you, Wayne. Appreciate that. Well, and, and, and once again, I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm making this up. I mean, the, 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 I mean, you got Preston Gillespie, and, and you've got, uh, I want to make sure I get this name right, you've got uh, Julie Johnson, one's an executive vice president and CEO of Duke Energy. The other is Duke Energy's executive vice president and chief generation officer. I mean, I'm reading verbatim what, what Preston said 
Duke Energy's nuclear fleet was reliable, but solar generation was unable to meet peak demand because it occurred before sunrise. You know what my question would be? I mean, if I were on the North Carolina Utilities Commission, I mean, my question would be, but were we depending on solar to meet that peak demand? I mean, that's the natural follow-up question. He volunteers the information that the reason they were unable to meet peak demand is because it, you know, that they were depending on solar. So, so my question would be, why are we depending on solar to meet peak demand when it's not a proven way to generate electricity? I mean, I'm not saying we don't need solar. I'm not saying we don't need wind or, or hydro or nuclear or coal. I mean, I think, you know, the, um, the energy answer to America's energy problems are all, yeah. I mean, we need all of these contributing in some way, shape, or form. But, but if we're depending on solar and solar has the incapability to meet peak demand, what are we doing about it? What is the answer? Have we taken energy production offline and replaced it with less dependable solar? Because they're admitting that solar was not very dependable. Am I right, Rev? I mean, that's my interpretation. Yeah. I mean, Preston um, Gillespie is admitting that solar was not very dependable it's when right they there, really right needed it. in their explanation. Sure. I mean, it's cold just before dawn. Uh, the sun's not up. Therefore, we're not generating any energy as a result of so. I don't know how they store it. I don't understand in any of that technology. But um, but those are very valid questions. Um, I may try to reach out to somebody at Duke or PD and um and get them to come on and explain our list. It'd be kind of an interesting conversation. I mean, I run around you know the uh the the airways for four hours talking about debt and energy and how important I think it is. And this is a relevant issue. I didn't imagine that we'd have an hour long conversation about the article, but, but the, the article is a national article and it says Duke energy apologizes Duke energy customers in North and South Carolina experienced rolling blackouts over Christmas. Duke is appropriately contrite, but its explanation of its own failures is somewhat revealing. And, and we get to a point where they say we couldn't meet our demand because we depended more on solar than we probably should have. Who made that call? Who made that decision? What corrections have been made to that decision? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. I've been fairly steadfast in my belief that the two major issues facing America as it relates to politics is our debt and our energy policy. I'm not saying I have the answer, but we have better have serious answers in regards to energy and debt. Um, we're now dealing with a House controlled by Republican leadership. The leader of the Republican Party in the House appears to have made a deal about, you know, curtailing spending or at least um, slowing down the amount of debt we incur as a federal government. Um, there's a difference in putting it on the credit card and paying what's already on the credit card. And I think we're talking about now paying for what's already on the credit card. The bargaining chip, I guess, is OK, but we're not going to put as much more on the credit card. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing? This and morning? Treasury, we're doing well. Kind of cold down south this morning. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, um, I think, sent a letter or sent, yeah, sent a letter to Congress um, basically explaining the important significance need to raise the debt ceiling. Um, is there any new news out of Congress as it relates to responding to Yellen's um, letter? Well, I think we're kind of going to get a better idea of what that, that could look like by Tuesday, right? You know, there's going to be some substantial negotiations that are probably going to go on behind the scenes 
uh, between some of the party leadership to kind of decide what the next steps are here. Uh, but I think the main question is kind of going to be to see how are, how are some of the fiscal hawks in Congress going to respond to this? You know, uh, Kevin McCarthy made a lot of concessions that we know about, uh, but we haven't seen all of them when it comes to how he became Speaker of the House. So I think that's a big question. Uh, what is McCarthy willing to give in on here and what is he willing to do? He has not ruled out uh, raising the debt limit in this case, but it's certainly going to be something we need to follow here. Ryan, how interested are the Democrats in that deal? In other words, we'll raise the debt ceiling if you'll agree to go back to 2020 um, to spending. That, that's, I think that's a good question to ask. You know, it, it, they certainly have kind of been adamant in their different press conferences from Hakeem Jeffries and, and Chuck Schumer that they want the debt, the debt limit to be raised. They want to do it in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, and they kind of reference how this was done three times under the Trump administration where the debt limit was reached uh, or came, was, was brought up, and then they eventually decided to raise it uh, in a bipartisan manner. So they've been pretty adamant. They don't want to use this uh, as something to hold hostage is kind of a term that's been thrown around there, uh, and that they, they, they're pretty adamant that they want it raised. So it just depends on if they have enough Republican support to get a deal done where they can negotiate this and get it raised and kind of address it. But, you know, I think what they're willing to give up is going to be the big question here. You know, are they are they open to spending cuts? Are they open any type of entitlement reform? or spending reform, I think that's a big question to ask. Ryan, if they aren't, we just keep going? I mean, you're in Washington, I'm not. I mean, it's an absurd amount of money we owe. Is is that the alternative, that we just keep, you know, 31 turns into 33, 33 turns into, into 35, 35 turns into 40, and we'll see how far we can, can push the debt envelope? Right. That, I think that's that's the big concern, you know, and, and you have you have Kevin McCarthy kind of saying, well, this time we're going to put our foot in the ground and we're not going to allow these big spending bills to get passed. But obviously you have the omnibus that's already been passed and that's going to be uh, the, the budget for the federal government up until September. But, you know, I, I don't know what what it's going to look like if, if Republicans are going to be able to get uh, spending cuts done, because McCarthy's been pretty adamant that that he does want to push for uh cuts to the federal budget but you know what are they going to be able to get done with democrats because you know you still gonna have to get all that's gonna have to go through chuck schumer still because he's still running the senate so that's the big question mark are they going to be able to get any enough democrats on board with them to, to support that because you did have what's interesting is a couple of years ago you did have a significant number of democrats kind of the blue dog democrats and a lot of moderates uh pass or, or sign a letter saying that they support a balanced budget amendment. Now, a lot of those Democrats did eventually lose seats to Republicans. So I, I don't, it's kind of going to be a good question to ask is how many Democrats are willing to kind of take that, take that on and, and be on that side of cutting, cutting spending. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. And, and Ryan's talking about Yellen. I mean, Yellen sent a letter last week, basically to members of Congress explaining the importance and there is, I mean, Yellen makes a case. I mean, we're not asking to put new things on the credit card. We're asking to pay the debt we've already incurred. I mean, you know, there's a bill due, and you got to pay the bill. Um, they will hit the $31.4 trillion. Government has been authorized via the last raising of the debt ceiling to spend $31.4 trillion. I mean, that's the statutory limit to what they can spend. Um, that runs out January 19. I mean, on January 19, to keep the federal government operational, Will exceed. It'll take in excess of thirty-one point four trillion dollars. So, um, if we don't do that, I mean, here's yelling. You know, it's just the. Um, it's a little bit like the debt. See, remember we got. To, I mean, everybody's hair's on fire. 
we got to do it right now. If we don't do it right now, the cataclysmic will come and mm. the world will never be um, the same. So, so what Yellen basically says in her letter that um, if we don't raise the debt ceiling from 34, I mean, statutorily, 31.4 is where it is now. I don't know what they want to raise it to, but she'll have to start. You, you heard this before. Extraordinary cash uh, flow measures. In other words, the Treasury will have to um, manage its cash in a way it, you know, it, it takes extraordinary talent, gifts, and skills, um, or it will likely default. Um, Don't make us do that. Well, I mean, they, they, you know, we, we've heard this a hundred times. There, when you, it's not extraordinary, but they have to be a little more creative. Yeah, you, you have to really manage as a business would manage. Um, they wouldn't default until sometimes in June. I mean, it's bizarre. Government accounting is something I've still never completely <laughs> and totally understood. But there's a $31.4 trillion statutory limit that if kept, uh, you know, running as it is now, um, will exceed that January 19. But if Yellen has to earn her money and work a little bit, um, she can do these extraordinary things that only she can do about the way we manage the cash that comes into the federal government. And she can keep us from defaulting sometime uh, early June. Now, Yellen sounds like to me, I don't want to do extraordinary things. I don't want to work that hard. You know, I've been here a long time, and um, and I've got my days in. I didn't hire to work this hard. You know, I, <laughs> I don't want to have to do anything extraordinary. So I uh, raised the debt ceiling from 31.4 to whatever they choose um, to raise it to. But it does seem to me that McCarthy is serious about the concessions he made. Well, I mean, it kind of has to be because they've got this, um, you know, motion to vacate that they'll, you know, they'll, they'll make it <laughs> – uh, you know, a um, a less than pleasant experience for Kevin McCarthy if he balks at some of the concessions he's made. So, I mean, it'll be interesting. They're asking for about $85, um, uh, $75 billion cuts to uh, military spending. Uh, I think the military budget per the $1.7 trillion omnibus raised it to $857 billion. If we go back to 2022 spending levels, that cuts about $75 billion out of um, out of the defense budget. What does it do to uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? Nothing because the CRs have taken care of that, the continuing resolutions. I mean, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are on autopilot. I mean, there just are. I mean, what does it take to fund it? Well, it takes this much. We'll find it. You know, take it out of the, um, the, the coffers of the federal government, the general fund, and – I mean, they're borrowing money, moving money around intra-government debt. I mean, you hear some some of that. There is no Social Security trust fund. I mean, there is, but it's very depleted. It'll probably be insolvent by 2030-ish. Might be two or three or whatever. You got 10,000 people a day turning 65 years old, beginning to collect the benefit of Medicare. We know how extravagant that cost is. We've had this debate every year. On Wake Up Carolina, I would imagine if we do this show another 10 years, we'll have it for 10 more years until some political courage exhibits itself in a meaningful way that says, look, I'm willing to put my job at risk to have an adult conversation with the American people. I'm willing to be the first Republican that says, vote me out, but I'm not going to leave my grandkids with that much less opportunity than I afforded to myself. And, and I'm telling you guys, we're getting to a number. When you look at unfunded liabilities, look at some of the promises government has made in its pension funds and health care um, contributions. And I'm talking about looking forward. I mean, you're going to have more and more bureaucrats not working, but receiving pension, receiving health care. I mean, there's enormous costs associated with those realities. And, um, and this is as good an opportunity as any for the Republicans to say, 
Um, and I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll be a little bit nervous sledding for a lot of these guys and ladies. But somebody has to, you know, the, the fundamental question really and truly is, is America. I mean, it, let's say the political leadership's willing to have this adult conversation. Are Americans willing to have that? Are the American people willing to engage serious politicians? There won't be many, but there could be a double handful. But if a double handful of American politicians reach out to the American public and say, look, I want to talk to you about Social Security and its potential insolvency. I want to talk to you about Medicare and the uh, and the deficit it runs annually. I want to talk to you about Medicaid and what it does to state budgets, the federal budget. And I want to talk to you like you're an adult. And I want you to treat me like I'm an adult. How many people? What did we say last week? 20% are critical thinkers. I mean, how many of the 80% just say, I don't want any part of that. Let's just keep running the tab. Keep putting it on the tab of that 31.4 trillion turns into 34.4 trillion, a 38.4 trillion, and 41.4 But you have such a small group of people that would even try to address that. I'm talking about politicians because you think about it, their opposing politicians will immediately use it in the throw grandma off the cliff argument. Right? But if we were a serious nation, which we aren't, but if we were a serious nation, 80% of the American people would understand that that guy's having a necessary conversation. I mean, no, nobody in Washington wants to cut your Social Security or cut your Medicare, but it's trying to preserve it. It's trying to keep it in some way. I mean, it's already insolvent. I mean, I know they're saying 20, 30, 31, 32 is when they just run out of money. I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme now. I mean, both really and truly are. Medicare and Social Security, I mean, they're means tested. I mean, it's, an, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a Ponzi scheme, to be honest with you. And if the American politician are willing to reach out to the American public and have that sort of discourse, how many of us are willing to consider allowing them uh, back in office again? Um, no Democrat's going to do this. I mean, we know that the concern is, you know, of the, remember we talked about the um, the heroism of the 12 to 18 who held out and took the, um, the lambasting of the mainstream media, but didn't give in to McCarthy, got mm-hmm. some concessions, got some real concessions, the Chip Roy's of the world, um, it, it's, it's still fundamentally discouraging to know that um, 200 Republicans had no interest in that. I mean, you would expect the Democrats. I mean, they, they like big government. They, they believe in modern monetary theory and Keynesian economies. Um, but, but the Republicans, you would expect to say, you just can't keep doing this. Well, only 12 to 18 said you just can't keep doing this. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Morning, Bert. I'm just wondering something. Every time this conversation comes up, it's always let's talk about cutting the military and let's talk about what everybody pretty much depends on for their retirement, the average person, I think. How come we don't ever go see uh, Rand Paul and say, let's look at that list, you know, where they're paying to see how far a, a shrimp can run on a treadmill and, you know, how many uh, gay people we can train in another country to express their feelings properly. How come we don't ever go to that list? Because that list seems pretty extensively wasteful of our money. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I mean, I get that, and I, I'm all for you know cutting some of the programs that don't make any sense. But in all honesty, when you look at the pie chart, the mandatory spending juxtaposed to discretionary spending, I mean, the mandatory. I mean, we would agree the the biggest contributors to debt today, and you can say, well, I mean, they're they're important. They are. You, you got to pay the interest on the debt. 
I mean, that's going to be about a trillion dollars, be a little better than a trillion by 2024. I mean, at 4% interest, uh, the debt we're financing today will be about $1.24 trillion in interest. I mean, you got to pay that. So there's 20% of the money out the door to simply pay the interest on the debt we've incurred. And then you've got the entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's probably 70-ish percent of all federal outlays. So, I mean, I'll pull the pie chart up during the break. I hear Bert, and I'm with Bert, 1,000%. I'm with Rand Paul, excuse me, Ron Paul, 1,000%. We shouldn't care, you know, how many times cheetahs sleep with another cheetah, you know, and and, and how many, uh, I don't know, um, how tired a hamster is if it runs on a wheel for, you know, I mean, the, the federal government has no business funding research like that. I mean, that's absurd. But the, the expense associated is minuscule compared to, to the big ticket items. And that's the entitlement program, the defense budget, and, you know, servicing the debt on the money we've already borrowed. Take a break back in just a few. I live the majority of my life in a very undisciplined fashion, but the one thing I've been able to discipline myself is go to the gym. Every time I go to the gym and finish my workout, I go to some news agencies or, or services, and there's another document that they found in another resident or you know, um, the Biden, the Penn Biden Center for Strategic uh, Chinese Sellouts. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. News broke over the weekend. Uh, we're talking about Biden's issues with documents. And uh, once again, there's kind of a daily drop, you know, uh, five here, six there. But he doesn't keep his Corvette on the curb, y'all. He keeps his Corvette Don't you dare in a secure location. Say something bad about his Corvette. And the implication is that my Corvette is every bit as important as those documents are. Somebody over the weekend um, said something similar to what I said about, I believe the documents were in place for whoever wrote, ghost wrote the books on his behalf. Um, somebody else is circulating God, an innuendo or a speculation similar to that. But what we did find out over the weekend, we've always kind of believed this to be the case, but you wonder how the money gets from Hunter to Joe. Right? I mean, Hunter gets a lot of money for doing nothing. I mean, he's ill-equipped to be much of anything when it comes to a board member or a productive member of an organization. Um, well, according to Chuck Todd, there's no law against making well, I mean, money off may, the name. Maybe there's not. Maybe there's not. Uh, we shall see in the long run. But um, but we did find out over the weekend from the New York Post that um, that Hunter Biden was paying Joe Biden about fifty grand a month to rent a house, the house, where the classified documents were. Um, an art, there's an article in one of the uh, websites I read over the weekend um, that says he was paying 49910 in monthly rent to Joe Biden for a house that Joe Biden owned. Now, now Hunter Biden, basically on one of the uh, background screening requests, said he was the owner of the home. That's not the case. The, uh, the, the mortgage and some of the financial arrangements were done in Joe Biden's name, but he paid $550,000 in 11 months that he indicated he lived there. Um, 2018, uh, Biden, Hunter Biden claimed he owned the home, uh, and this is the home that Joe Biden kept classified documents alongside his Corvette in the garage, secure garage, uh, mind you. But, um, but, but I went back and looked, and um, the, the most expensive home in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, via Zillow, is about $6,000 per month. Joe Biden's home is valued at $2 million. Still not bad on a senator's salary, mm -hmm. but um, but $2 million home. 
And um, and Hunter Biden's paying fifty thousand dollars. They're actually five hundred fifty thousand dollars for eleven months of rent. There's I mean there's a good indication there as how Joe Biden is getting his money. I mean if Joe's the big guy and Vinny Barbarino says he is, so if Joe's the big guy. Then I'm talking about Tony Bobolinsky. Stick with me for a second. I know that's <laughs> I a welcome back Cotter reference, but some out there may not and say, call me in. Ah, it wasn't Vinny Bobarino, it was uh, Tony Bobolinsky. <laughs> um, but um, but when you look back at some of the um, the, the Wilmington home address is the kind of the central location of the story today because they go there, they find several documents, they go back, find another document. Uh, I think there was an office there that they found a classified document. Um, so you've got three locations. You've got about 20 documents total that were deemed classified. Some of the Biden Center, the Penn Biden Center, mind you, and um, some in the, the Penn Biden Center that was funded by anonymous Chinese donors. See, here's the fact pattern. Fact one. I mean, th- 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 there's a, and I'm not speculating here, guys. Here's a fact pattern that, that Joe Biden had classified mishandled documents in a Delaware home that he owns. We know that to be true, but he's admitted that much. Now, now it was um, not intentional. Uh, he, he never knew about it as long as told him not to speculate on what may or may not be there. But the fact is, and that is a substantiated fact, that the second fact is this Hunter Biden had access to the property of which the, the, um, the classified mishandled documents were. The third fact in all of this is Hunter Biden was paying Joe Biden um, $50,000, $49,910. Let's be exact here. $49,910 per month, paid $550,000 for 11 months in rent to his father, um, I guess to stay in the home of which the classified documents were. So so there's how... I mean, you got you to be speculative here. Nobody's going to admit this. If you're trying to connect dots. But if you're trying to connect dots, that, that's a good way to say it. Then you got to wonder, okay, if, if Hunter Biden is peddling influence, how is he getting the money to his father? I mean, if the money goes in Hunter Biden's name or if Hunter Biden's allowed to sit on a board. In other words, if um, Hunter, if you can tell us some of these secrets of, of, of your father's government, here's what we'll do for you. Well, I mean, Hunter gets the money. He gets $8 million, $4 million. And I can hear, you know, Jeff now. How about Jared Kushner and, um, and you know, so, some, of the, um, some of the Saudi Arabian <laughs> deals and uh, I think a Yemen deal or so, some of the Middle Eastern deals, let's say it that way. Okay, well, I mean, we'll go down that road if you'd like. And, and once again, if Kushner and, and Ivanka did things, um, you know, that, that deserve to be looked at, let's look. I mean, let's get to the bottom of it. But, but we, we kind of have a fact trail now or a fact pattern. And the fact is, Joe Biden had classified documents in a location that Hunter Biden had access to. Hunter Biden paid his father $49,910 a month in an area where the the highest rent per month was $6,000 per month. So is that an anomaly? Of course it is. I mean, there is no comp to that. So so where do we go from here? What I mean, Chuck Todd says there's no crime against, you know, making money off of your last name. But but who's paying whom? I mean, that, you know, if if Hunter Biden is getting paid by, by some of the, um, I mean, Burisma, some of the Ukrainian companies, the, um, 
the the Chinese companies. I think there may have been a Russian company involved in this. Somebody's making a lot of money sitting on boards and consulting in businesses that he knew very little about. And, you know, we've always believed that the um, the way to Joe was through Hunter. But but how does Hunter get the money to his father? And Bobolinsky, I want to go back and read this. Remember when Tucker interviewed Bobolinsky and he said, I want, to, I want to make sure I, I quote this the way it needs to be quoted. Um, Tony Bobolinsky, another one of Hunter's former business partners, claims that he had a meeting with Joe Biden regarding the CEFC, that's the Chinese energy firm, um, venture on May 2nd, 2017, and that the president was the individual referred to as the big guy. Remember the email. Um, it was confirmed that Joe Biden was the big guy by Tony Bobolinsky um, in the interview with Tucker Carlson, and it also corroborates what messages were found on, on the laptop. Um, the New York Post reports, the following year, federal investigators began looking into whether Hunter and his business associates violated tax and money laundering laws during their dealings in China and other countries. Email and other records related to the deals were found on the laptop, which Hunter dropped off at a Delaware repair shop in 2019 and never reclaimed. Um, remember the remember the correspondence. It's vague to me, but remember when. Um, Hunter told his daughter, I think her name may have been Naomi, that um that that unlike Pop, I won't make you give me a, half a text message of your salary. Well, well, in essence, I mean that was a text message. You're yeah. right, that was a text message. But but he he was telling his daughter because I think his daughter was complaining about you know um, Hunter needed money or there was some financial arrangement they had with one another, and he said, but don't worry, unlike Pop, I won't make you give me um, half your salary. So. Pop was getting about 50 grand a month in rent. And um, and here's the text message. You ready? Uh, this was found on Hunter's laptop. And it's 2019. It's a text message Hunter sent his daughter um, saying that he gives Pop, his dad, half his salary. I want to get my glasses to make sure I can read this uh, properly. You ready? Really, I did that just you figure out from this semester on and the rest of her life how to figure out how you support yourself I never give you another dime again. If you want to go to pop, that's fine. I love you, but never fight for even what is best for your sister. Find a department with Peter by next week and send the keys. Send me the keys and leave all my furniture and art. So he's having a you know a, a conversation with his daughter. Not such a pleasant one. Uh, I love all of you, but I don't receive any respect, and that's fine, I guess. Works for you, apparently. I hope all you can do. I hope you can all do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard. But don't worry, unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. So Hunter Biden was paying his father $49,910 to live uh, in a $2 million mansion that his dad owned. Is that unusual? Yes. I mean, th- th- does that not generate some curiosity <laughs> well, yeah. amongst the consuming public? It should. So, so, so son has problems, right? Son lives at home. Or, or is um, residing. I don't think he lived there. I think he's in and out. But he's residing in a home um, that belongs to his dad. The home has classified documentation, and he's paying his dad fifty grand a month to live in the home. How can that not raise red flags? How can we not be deeply concerned? Now, now once again, the, the element of surprise here, I mean, I've always found it curious that Joe Biden was paid, that, that Joe Biden's son 
was paying his father 50 grand a month to stay at a home. Now we know that home also housed top secret, confidential, classified material that Joe Biden has now been accused of and has pretty much admitted that he's mishandled some of this classified material. That's, that's, I mean, that's a, a blockbuster, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that somewhat of a is, smoking gun? Because it appears to me they're, this is how they're, they're trying to hide it. In other words, if, if the rent is so far above like 10 times the market for that area, probably, right? How can you justify that without saying there's something else up? You can't justify that. Plus, it's not a, a, a you know, a friend or a, or a wealthy business right. associate. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of a friend has a beach home. And his, one of his good friends gets a divorce, and he doesn't have anywhere to stay, and he needs somewhere to stay. And he's got plenty of money, and he says, hey, man, I just need to get away for a while. Can I stay in your beach home? And the friend would say, yeah, but that beach home generates a lot of money, man. I lease it. You know what I mean? I rent it out during, during the summer. He says, I don't care. I mean, I got plenty of money. Tell me what I need to do. That, that, would, I mean, that would stand to reason. I mean, that's unusual. But those sorts of things happen. I mean, if Dave and, there's, Baker, and there's a market value that you could place sure. on it that makes sense. Well, I mean, but but to Dave, it may not matter. I mean, today, let's say Dave Baker has millions and millions and millions of dollars, like and he and I are friends. And Dave's had a um, an episode in his life that just you know didn't, he didn't see coming, and he's to get away. Uh, he and his wife are not getting along so well. Ref comes to me and says, "Hey, man, I know you got that beach house, and I need to get away." Well, I mean, I love Rev, but you know what I'm gonna tell Rev? Rev, I got to deal with a realtor. I got to deal with a um, with a lease company. You know, they lease that house. They rent that house during the summer that generates X number of dollars. And the rest says, well, I'll pay that. I mean, if that's what it generates, I'll pay that. Don't worry about it. I just need to get away. I got to have somewhere to stay. That's weird, but that happens. But but a son and a father? I mean, a son's going to pay 10 times the market rate to live in a home that dad owns? Really? I mean, where to buy that's not real unusual? We shouldn't look under the covers and see what's there when it comes to that storyline. And now we find out. I mean, to me, that was bizarre enough. But now we find out that not only was Hunter paying 50 grand a month to his father to stay in a $2 million home, now we find out there was a Corvette in the garage. There was also classified documentation in the garage. I mean, that, to me, that's the investigation. Because once again, as Chuck Todd says, there's no law against getting rich off your last name. Correct. I mean, you and I, you and I talk a little bit about NASCAR. I mean, Chase Elliott can't can't help it because his last name's Elliott. I mean, he's caught some breaks because of that. Dale Earnhardt Jr. I mean, if his name were Dale Earnhardt or Dale Smith Jr., I mean, do you think he'd have a uh, a racing career and a podcast as far as um six? No. I mean, they, they, you know, some people win the Ovarian Lottery. Those two guys did. Apparently, Hunter Biden did. But but trafficking in you know national intelligence yeah, and okay, security. Chuck Todd, why don't you ask? Since we know there's some things that appear unusual, ask what Hunter was getting paid for. What product or service was he providing for the extraordinary amount of money he was receiving? When you've got two extraordinary amounts of money, you've got Hunter Biden making eight million dollars sit on a corporate board that he has no experience nor expertise. Right? I mean, we know that to be true. Mm-hmm. He sat on the board at Barisma. I mean, he doesn't know anything about that. They paid him a lot of money. So when they pay Biden the money, he's got it in his account. I'm talking about Hunter Biden's got it in his account. So so the next step is, I mean, if dad got him the job, I mean, if dad traded, if dad peddled influence in the name of the United States taxpayer, the United States government, and dad said, look, I'll do this, but Hunter's got to get paid. And Hunter gets paid, and he gets paid by sitting on the board at Burisma. He gets paid by this Chinese energy company. He's got to get the money to dad some way, somehow. So I think this is the creative way 
to get money to his dad. Explain. Give me another. Give me an alternate reason. If somebody from Ukraine or China reach out to the American government and need a favor or need some sort of um, information, I don't have any idea where that information is. I don't know what's on these 20 documents that have been mishandled. They're classified. Is it national security? Is it trying? I don't have any idea. Is it uh, methods and operations of the government? I don't have any idea. Nobody does at the moment. Well, I mean, I think Biden, well, he probably doesn't know, but somebody knows. But, but if, if, if Hunter Biden is living in a home and Hunter Biden has access to confidential American security information and Hunter Biden gets paid $8 billion annually to sit on a board of a foreign energy company, I mean, wow. I mean, is this really about classified documents? Or is this about classified documents that were made available to Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden made available to the Chinese or the Ukrainians or whomever? I mean, I'm just speculating here. Whomever he was um, willing to make that information available to, here's the question you got to ask yourself, Rev. What did Hunter Biden get paid to do? Right. I mean, that, to me, that's the fundamental question. What did Hunter Biden get paid enormous amounts of money to do? And I think when you start putting the puzzle together, there's still that unknown. But he got paid a lot of money from, from a lot of different foreign countries and governments to do what? Well, now we're beginning to say, I don't know if he got paid to provide national security information, but he could have because he was paying his father $49,910 a month to stay in a home that his dad owned. And not only, not only was there a Corvette in the garage, there was also um, some classified information that's a blockbuster guys that's a smoking gun that deserves um a full-fledged you know jim jordan led investigation <laughs> to find out exactly if those dots can be connected let's take a break we'll be back in just a few moments i don't know if it's the cold or not but we have issues with the internet and phones are dead if i'm yeah. not mistaken uh bad time for that to happen i think we had a caller or two on the line we apologize for the uh disruption of service but the trouble is not um it's not with us it's with um i guess the provider is spectrum right yeah we've had some issues reported with potentially the stream being down and up and down again and the phone lines in the building going down as well so if you tried to get through and you couldn't get through that's why and we had a scheduled call with fox we might not be able to get on because of that so there's no reason for me to say eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is the number because if you call um, you won't get anybody. I'll well, keep trying. I'm sure it'll get fixed eventually. It is interesting that um, I mean, there's a belief out there now amongst mainstream uh, politicos that, you know, the uh, the liberal Democrats are trying to dispense of or dispatch of um, Joe Biden. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it does seem that he's made himself pretty darn uh, vulnerable when it comes to uh, his prospects moving moving forward. Uh, I think we got the, he looks like the phones are ringing and that might be Jeff. So we'll see. Okay. Jeff Manon. This is Hold Jeff. On. Okay. Let's, we do have the, um, the phones back up and running. Looks like it. Uh, Jeff, is that you? Morning guys. Happy Monday. Good morning, sir. Happy Monday to you. We apologize. We've been inconsistent with our phone service today. When, when it gets below freezing in the South, everything yeah. shuts down, Jeff. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, yeah. Everything <laughs> imaginable shuts down. So I want I want to touch on this for a second. I saw your name and this subject on my rundown sheet. Um, we, we've heard all the advantages of EVs and, you know, the, um, the government sings the praises. It's a disruption. It's an evolution. It's going to make our worlds, uh, our, our lives much more, uh, beneficial. 
But, but the reality is there are some unexpected and unknown hazards that come along with transitioning from the traditional internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle. What are we aware of, Jeff, when it comes to unexpected safety hazards? Well, the National Transportation Safety Board is now warning of risks posed by heavy electric vehicles colliding with lighter cars. Uh, one example noted the electric DMC Hummer weighs about 9,000 pounds. The battery pack in that vehicle alone weighs almost 3,000 pounds. Um, that's roughly the weight of a typical Honda Civic that weighs about 3,000 pounds. And the nonprofit Center for uh, Auto Safety is, is also saying that uh, bigger, heavier batteries are, are going to cause more damage in the case of a crash. The extra weight that EVs typically carry stems from the outsized mass of their batteries, basically to achieve 300 miles uh, of, of range or more per charge. Uh, and while some battery chemistries are being developed to you know, have the potential to pack in more energy into less mass, uh, that technology really isn't there now. Uh, and in 2011, the National Bureau of Economic Research published a paper that said being hit by a vehicle with an added 1,000 pounds increases by 47% the probability of being killed in a crash. So this is some serious stuff that uh, the EV industry is having to work through. That is very interesting. Jeff, thank you for your time. Appreciate the information, sir. You bet. That's kind of a, um, you know, you hear all the positives of EVs and, you know, it's going to make everybody's life fundamentally different and better. And uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see how that how that works out. Somebody texted me a second ago and said, you know, the big story here is the timeline, the timeline regarding the document. In other words, they knew the first batch of documents was discovered um, November 2nd, I think, in Biden's office at the University of Pennsylvania, hmm. um, the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania. To me, that's politics. I mean, that's just home cooking. That's what you do. You, I mean, if you've got bad information right before an election, you figure out everything in your power to make sure it doesn't rear its head and be known out uh, of the public. I think the, uh, the, the other revelation was December 20th or 21st, if I'm not mistaken. And then the most recent is, um, you know, the last couple of, um, not over the weekend, but maybe Wednesday and Thursday of last week, there were some other um, classified Docu or, or markings. There were there were five more documents last week that included classified markings, and I think that was uncovered on Wednesday and Thursday, or Thursday and Friday. I just don't. I mean, to me, that that's politics. Jim Jordan is real emotional. I mean, he's invested in, and he will chair the um the House Judiciary Committee that does the investigating into this, and he's really insisting that the American people deserved to know. Um, what was in the documents before casting their ballots for Republicans or Democrats? Well, I would expect a Democrat member of Congress, or excuse me, a Republican member of Congress to say that. But but to me, the, the, the central question is still, I mean, it's not even what did Biden know and when did Biden know it? Follow the money. I mean, I still believe that's the most important. It always is. Sure. Remember what I said last week, <laughs> money's the answer. Now, what's the question? <laughs> right. And that's, I still believe that. So when you talk about, you know, when did Biden know? Um, who else knew it? Uh, why did they not reveal the information before, you know, the election? Yeah, I just um, always thought it was interesting that it didn't really start coming out until the Republicans were sworn in control of the House. 
and then all of a sudden the the drip drip oh there's one there's two there now we're up to what four but people don't really understand rev the casual consumer of political news doesn't understand some of the nuances i mean you do and i do and a lot of our listeners do but the average public watching seinfeld they don't understand that you know what they do understand someone getting paid Everybody understands that. I mean, in other words, it's an easy story to get your arms around. So, so when you say, when you say to the consuming public, the average American, if you say, hey, they knew this several days before the election and they refused to reveal it, the American public would go, of course they did. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they did. I mean, you, you, you would probably do or, or you'd fall in that same category by trying to, you know, disquelch the story or disallow it from being out of the mainstream that the average American believes that politicians are getting paid to do things in the name of taxpayer dollars. They don't know that they're getting taxpayer dollars, but they believe they're trafficking in uh, American government. That, you know, the all these politicians make a um, a decent salary, but they end up living in $2 million homes. They end up with, um you know, $20 million stock portfolios. Their right. wealth increases enormously while they are a, a public servant. So the money of the situation is what I think matters the most. And um, you're talking about this case and Trump's case. You're talking about, you know, I mean, there, there, there are going to be a lot of takeaways from this. Um, but I still believe the biggest takeaway is that Hunter Biden had access to a home that we know now classified documents were kept and stored. Did Hunter know this? See, I think that's a very appropriate question. If Hunter Biden is... um is asked to testify, probably plead the fifth, but if, he, if he's asked to testify, can, can anybody else answer that question? You know, how many days was Mr. Hunter Biden in this home? How many days coincided? How many days was Hunter Biden in this home while there were classified documents in the garage? In other words, how many times could Hunter Biden have taken a, a, a picture of those documents and sent to a Ukrainian or Chinese organization. I don't know that he ever did. I don't have any idea if he ever did. Somebody did did ask the press secretary for the visitor log for the home. And I would imagine that will have to be made available at some point in time. I mean, I think you have to make that sort of information available. And her answer was, well, we've we've reinstituted visitor logs for the White House when the previous administration had done away with them. Well, that was her answer. But we're not talking about the White House. I know. We're talking about a private residence. And she deflected to that. And, And of course she would. Of course she would, because um, I mean the black lesbian works for the White House, so she's not going to get her herself in harm's way. Of course she would do exactly what you would expect her to do. But that I mean, it's all about the money. It's going to always be all about the money. So yeah, there there are these multiple questions that we don't have answers to. Maybe we get the answers, maybe we don't. But I hope that Jim Jordan kind of kind of just you know zooms in on and really applies the pressure to. The, the, the fact that Hunter Biden got paid a lot of money from foreign entities, we don't know what he did. We don't think he had any expertise. And did it have anything to do with the documents being stored? Uh, and, and, and was the $50,000 the $50, a month payment to live there, was that a way to get, you know, the big guy his 10% cut? Um, I'm not done the math. But, but if, if Hunter's share, I mean, is that 10% of Hunter's share? And I get what, what, I mean, I can hear Jeff right now or some of our other liberal listeners about Kushner and Ivanka and, you know, Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries. I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I've already read, you know, that um, it's kind of the um, the moral equivalency. You know, this is not as bad as Trump. Right. Well, Trump's not the president. I mean, Trump's being investigated. 
The scope of investigation with Trump is about a thousand times more inclusive than the scope investigation that they're doing on Joe Biden. Um, and I'm talking about the the special counsel. Forget the special counsel for just a second. I mean, to me, this is all about the House Judiciary Committee led by Jim Jordan. I mean, they, they, they'll have the ability to subpoena. Uh, they, they, they'll get their hands on confidential records. Uh, you're talking about the visitor's log. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know, they'll subpoena the visitor's log. They'll request a lot of information. And um, and I'd love to see this happen sooner sooner than later. W- one, of the, one of the other narratives that I think we need to pay close attention to, how, dis- you know, how expendable is Joe Biden? I mean, how much protection do they give for Joe Biden? Well, when you see the mainstream media that traditionally we feel have been running cover for the Biden administration and for the gaffes and all of, all of that, and then all of a sudden they are aggressively asking some questions, you got to wonder why now. But, but I think any time a president is found to have chastised a former president about his behavior and antics, and I mean, you've heard Joe Biden when he said, I just can't believe the guy was that irresponsible. I can't believe he was that careless. I can't believe he was that, you know, um, out of the norm and the way he handled classified information. And now all of a sudden, well, I mean, Andy McCarthy started his story in the National Review, might have been Saturday, Friday or Saturday, by um, kind of recounting what Barack Obama said about never underestimate Joe's ability to goof things up. But the word is not goof things up. You remember um, the word. I it's remember. the old, um, old F bomb that, that he said. <laughs> And um, and that's kind of where we are today. In other words, you had um, you had something on Trump that you thought was going to really disqualify him or, or hold him at bay. You know, the investigation into Donald Trump mishandling classified documents was kind of a one up. The Democrats felt they had on Trump and the Republicans. Well, now you don't because both a sitting president and his predecessor are under investigation for criminal activity involving classified documents and information. And I still go back to my simple analogy the first of last week. I mean, if you rob a bank and you steal a million bucks and you rob a bank and steal a thousand bucks, aren't both of you still bank robbers? I mean, the degree of severity, I would imagine if you're a Democrat, that's what you kind of hang your hat on, you know, that, um, that the Biden administration is working with the special prosecutor. The Trump administration is not. Um, they're being obstinate and difficult and creating obstacle after obstacle to make sure they can't find the um, the answers to the questions they need. The Biden administration, well, I mean, it's hard to argue they're in complete compliance because they knew November 2nd and they refused to reveal until, you know, recently. So I mean, to say they've been completely compliant, I mean, that's just dishonest. It's not the job of the DOJ to reveal some of this to the public, but it is the White House's job. Once the White House was uh, made aware that there are classified documents at the at the, uh, the the Penn Center. To me, it's the White House's obligation to come clean and say, hey, just so you know, before you hear from others, here's what we did. It was not intentional. It was nothing as severe as anything Donald Trump has ever done. I mean, you can create the narrative however you want to create the narrative, but I think you owe to the American. But nobody's surprised by that. The, the revelation that will eventually draw the public into this story is not going to be when he told or how he told. It's going to be money. Hunter Biden gets paid a lot of money. What did he get paid that money for? And now it looks like he may have gotten paid, but because he peddled influence. Not not trafficked in his last name. I mean, this isn't Chase Elliott or Dale Earnhardt Jr. I mean, this is a guy who peddled influence. 
to foreign governments what sort of influence, what sort of information, what sort of national security secrets. I don't know. don't have any idea. But I got to believe that Jim Jordan at some point in time will get to the bottom of um, whatever it was Hunter Biden was getting paid for. And now we know. I mean, there's collaboration now that Biden was um, that Hunter Biden. Now, was he was he sober enough? I don't have any idea. Was he in a state of mind enough to go, you know, this is probably how it goes down. There's a wink and a nod to Hunter Biden that there's some information that may interest him in the garage and the garage with the Corvette. There's some information you may find interesting and and you kind of leave it there. And Hunter Biden, uh, being the team player he is, begins paying 50 grand a month to his father for a home that is valued at two million. I mean, that's that's a, that's a more valuable home than most of ours is. Probably very few people listening to my voice right now live in a $2 million home. But but $6,000 a month is kind of the going rate for a mansion in Wilmington, Delaware. He was paying, what, 25 times that for a $2 million home. That's bizarre. That's unique. That's troublesome. That is probably will end up being the smoking gun because people understand the monetary component. Take a break. Back in just a few. So when you call, you get through, and then you hang on for a second or two or three, and then it just drops you, right? Yeah, is that, yeah that's kind of what's happening. Okay. So. That's kind of what's and, happening? And some, is that what's some, happening? Well, sometimes you can't get a call through at all. From We've tried to test it, and like sometimes I'll get a message on my phone when I call our studio line, and it says this call cannot be completed. Some people are getting through, getting on hold, and then it drops. So let me, let me, don't know what's up. Let me explain the challenge of a Monday morning radio show. You ready? There's been significant cuts in the media. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, The Hill. Twitter has really electrified the political space. I mean, it, Rev was talking about Facebook a second ago. Uh, Rev even said, I don't think Facebook is long for the earth. Um, you may be right because it's mean, a lot of retreads. Is it just me or all I've been seeing on Facebook for, it seems like it's just gotten worse over the last several weeks, months or whatever, is you just see ads i mean i had the other day i logged into facebook and the first thing up was a couple of ads it didn't even show me post from my quote facebook friends but you see ads and then you see people sharing memories it just doesn't seem like people are posting very much on there and i i'm assuming that people are migrating away from facebook to other places and so all the that, younger people are yeah i mean they're all of the people I younger that's than just than me or not you, you or i um but but here's the here's the challenge of doing a radio show early monday morning Wall Street Journal doesn't have any new articles up unless something crazy happens. If there's a plane crash or, or an attack in Ukraine, but there's something, you know, earth shattering that happens over the weekend. But but it is apparent to me that some of these media organizations have trimmed their budgets to a point where there's not a lot of work getting done over the weekends. So when 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 I basically check out on Friday afternoon and I don't go to the Wall Street Journal, I don't go to New York Times, I don't go to Washington Post, I don't go CBS, ABC, NBC, Politico, The Hill, you know, Real Clear Politics, The National Review, the, the American Conservative. I mean, there's about 10 or 12 places I go multiple times a day. But if I go to those sites on Saturday, it's exactly what was on there Friday. If I go on Sunday, it's exactly what was on there Saturday. And it's got to be staffing. I mean, it's got to be budgeting. It's got to be whatever the parent company is says, look, we don't have enough money to have a weekend staff. Some people aren't checking up with our politics. Now, once again, if something earth-shattering happens, obviously they have people on standby, and I would imagine they're running skeleton crews. But when I step in here on on um, 
on Monday morning, there's just not a lot of new information out there. So it takes me and you, uh, you know, half the show on Monday morning to kind of get our bearings about us. Um, there's probably a lot that has happened. It's just these media organizations are not, you know, timely reporting or in real time reporting on it. And I believe it's because media has been so decentralized and traditional media has so been decimated. I mean, I can go to Twitter. I mean, I can go to I go to Twitter, you know, 30 minutes every morning before we ever go on the air. I go about 10 minutes at, you know, 5, 10 minutes at about 5.30 and maybe another 5 minutes or so just before we go on the air. And it is the most lively, you know, um, I don't want to say a media outlet. What is Twitter? I mean, it's a social media site. I get that. But it would be, uh, I mean, it's kind of an aggregator, you know, and, and my likes and my follows are normally in the political and Gamecock world. So if I want to know what's going on with politics or the Gamecocks, I can kind of follow on Twitter a lot better than I can some of the other, um, I mean, like the hill.com that there's one, there's two new stories on the Hill since Friday when I checked out and the Hill's what I'd call, um, you know, mainstream reporting. It's, it's a little more left of center than it is right of center. It's anti-Trump more than anything because they're establishment oriented. Um, and I guess, you know, they're funded by whomever is, um, is trying to keep the train running in the way that, um, that the train needs to run to keep all their, um, I don't know, all their objectives in order. But um, but but Monday mornings are always a struggle because it's only about mid-show, uh, you know, sometime around nine o'clock, eight thirty to nine, when you start seeing some new articles get posted. Here you go, one minute ago, um, twenty-six minutes ago, twenty-six minutes ago, an hour, uh, fifty-four minutes ago. But none of this was the case forty-five minutes ago. But none of this was the case when I sat down uh, first thing Monday morning. That's why I'm making this. You know, we may go through some weird stories first couple of hours on Monday morning. And that's mainly because, you know, most of the media outlets are using skeleton crews and there just ain't a lot out there to choose from. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The guy you like so much, Beato. What, what's his name on, Rick, on the YouTube guy? Rick, Rick Beato. That reconstructs all the songs and talks about the layers of music and tempo and um, the strings and the percussions and all these other yeah, he's a musician. sorts of things. He has, said, he has a series, by the way, called What Makes This Song Great, where he deconstructs hit music. It's great. great. He says that Sting 
is unreplicatable. You can't replicate Sting. He's the most unique artist of his time. I mean, that's pretty wild. And he's not talking about just vocals, but but rather vocals and instrumental and arrangement of production and all these things that Sting has such a hand in. Um, you've met Sting. Uh, I, I think you told me. Yep. And? Met him. He and? Was, <laughs> he's a little awkward A bit guy. different. Yeah. A bit different. But what I remember, you know, sometimes I've, I've had the opportunity going backstage at a concert, you meet an artist, they're nice, and they take a picture, they'll throw their arms kind of normal up around you. Well, you know, I guess as normal as they could be, but they're at least somewhat friendly. Not that Sting was not friendly, but I have a picture with him, and every picture I've seen with him and other people as well, he stands there with his arms crossed. And just, you know, <laughs> he'll, he'll let you take the picture, but he just kind of stands there. Good deal. He's not your buddy. <laughs> He's, um, but your guy, Beato, says he is unreplicatable, whatever um, great that artist. Means, that means he's kind of a um, a very unique musical figure. What are you going to say for y'all? Uh, he's talking about two things. Uh, the, his time signatures are just really rare. Um, and he, Explain that. So, I mean, what do you mean by okay, that? Okay, so the bass player and the drummer are usually on the same time signature. You know, whether it's four or two, whatever. Um, but Sting and, um, uh, what's, I'm sorry, I always forget his name. The drummer, whatever. Um, they play in different time signatures. Um, so there's that, and then also uh, his his vocal range is just. It, I think he's talking about that because it, you really, who else sounds like that in the world? Like nobody. Nobody I know. I mean, it's it's very distinguished. Freehold, do you watch Beato as well? Do you see what we're talking about? Yes, and uh, I do watch, and I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, explain. Uh, go back for a second. So when it comes to the um the playing out of what do you say out of sequence? Uh, signature. Out of okay, signature. Out of, yeah. uh, that's intentional. Uh, yeah. Well, why? I mean, why, why not do it the way everybody else does? It? it just sounds cool. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what okay. gives them that sound. Does it take a more talented musician to do what they're doing? Yes, because if I'm playing bass or guitar and I'm listening to the drum for the one and four, like, boom, 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 they're not getting that. And they're playing it in a different time. So they're so, showing off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they're trying to find something that's unique and interesting and... We'll make a hit, I guess. Yeah. Well, they named themselves the police. That's Stuart That's Copeland, pretty interesting right? in its own. Yes. Now, they didn't know that rural South would refer to them as the police. The police. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> They're the police to about 70% of America, but the other 30% refer to them as the police. And, and I would probably guess they would say, please don't do that. Yeah, please don't. Um, <laughs> I, I would do that intentionally. Right. Hey, Sting, you were the lead singer for the police, weren't you? <laughs> And he would have his arms crossed. Yeah. Who are you? And I was yeah. like, I'm just the guy that yeah. you never wanted to meet and won't ever get, want to meet again. Get him away from me. <laughs> get him away from me. Um, Ghost in the Machine, I think, was their uh, one of their big, big signature albums back in the day. But um, I've always thought they were one of the most unique bands. I mean, really and truly, we're talking about Genesis and, and Tom that's Petty. Probably and, part of what you know, Beato that's what, and, yeah, and, and, and that's what Freehold's talking, about. talking yeah. about the uniqueness of the arrangement of the music and. Um, you know, whether he's unreplicatable, I don't have any idea, but he is an enormously talented, and uh, I mean, he, I think we'd agree to this. He's been a transcending musician. I mean, he's written a lot of, I think I'm, I'm buying into what Freehold says, a lot of Sting songs don't sound like Sting songs. It's almost like, okay, I can tell that's a, you know, a Beatles tune, or I can tell that's a Springsteen song, or I can tell that's a, a Bee Gees. With Sting, it's like, with the police, it's like, I don't know, man. I mean, you expect this and you get that. You expect that to get something uniquely different. And um, and I think, have you seen the interview with Beato and Sting? I mean, yeah, it, I did, it, I did it see is, the whole thing. It, and Sting has a high regard for his deconstructing of music because when the guy asks questions, 
Sting's like, mm, okay, you do know what you're talking about. It wouldn't be like, hey, how'd you get the name Sting? You know what I mean? Or, hey, you remember that time? Yeah. Well, that was great. Um, how did You and the police were playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah. When did you decide you wanted to be in a rock band? <laughs> I mean, the question is, who doesn't want to be in a rock band when you're a 15-year-old dude? I mean, everybody wants to be quarterback for the Green Bay Packers or being a lead singer for a rock and roll band. I'm buying into what Freehold says. Mm-hmm. I mean, the um, I mean, I don't know how to explain it like he does, but there's something different yeah. about any sort of arrangement that Sting has has a hand in. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Ken. Uh, and y'all, y'all brought up some good memories. Uh, there was a Dire Straits song, "Money for Nothing," and mm. then Sting was in that one. Yep, sure was. That? Sure was. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talking about the police? You uh, you bringing up this bank robber analogy to classified documents, Kenneth? I watched this thing yesterday. Meet the press. Oh my gosh, Chuck Todd, uh, Biden. That's an accidental wreck. It was inadvertent. Trump. That's an intentional wreck. If you watch that show, I think the first guest was Ron Rod Rosenstein, and then he went and he backed up. Oh, this Christopher Ray. He's doing a superb job uh, with the FBI. So now you got your your alligators or covering for their walligators in Washington, and then uh, all of a sudden we get Ron Johnson, and it was Wisconsin senator. He just got reelected, and then you get into this argument about what crime has Hunter committed, and you get this uh, conversation with Johnson is. Look, every time you bring me on, this not an interview. It becomes an argument. And you liberal media people do this, blah, 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 blah. And then Chuck Todd says, I'm a journalist. I deal in facts. And then he told Johnson to go back to your partisan cable cocoon. I don't know. Did you watch this thing? I heard every word. I, I remember when he said that. I mean, I'm telling you, man. And he says, go back to your partisan cable cocoon. So who shows up as the, the, the round table? Uh, Hallie Jackson. She's got a show on MSNBC. She's kind of pretty. She's kind of pretty. <laughs> well, yeah, I noticed that. Too, well, okay. Man. I just I mean, want to make sure you saw that. She's, she's a kind of, she is sort of easy on the eyes. Same thing with Kristen Welker. She's got a little bit on the show. That was another guest weeks ago. And they got Al Sharpton. I don't know if he's easy on the eye, but he's got a show on MSNBC. So how are you going to talk about you're going to uh, a cable cocoon and you bring these people out of your cable cocoon to show up on your Sunday morning show so they can get more notoriety for their show? So They're hacks. You That's understand how. what I'm talking about. Sure I do. So, yeah, absolutely. So that that just that just blows my mind. But how many people that just casually flip through channels on Sunday morning because they don't go to church? They're just trying to entertain themselves. I mean, how many realize exactly what we just talked about? And I'll leave you at that. You have a good day. Thank you, David. But that's the concerning part of this, guys. I mean, the the, the mainstream media, the liberal mainstream media understands that the majority of people in America aren't critical thinkers and they're willing to have their heads full of mush. So if you turn that television on Sunday morning and you want to feel a little bit in tune with what's going on in America, you turn it to meet the press because once again, that's meet the press. 
I mean, that's the second longest running show in the history of American television. And it used to be great. Surely they wouldn't mislead me. So you got a cup of coffee, got a croissant. You know, you're sitting in your apartment in Manhattan. You turn on Meet the Press uh, because, once again, you want to be informed. You want to feel – you might even cross your legs, you know, to feel somewhat intellectual in the way you're <laughs> you're watching and studying and observing. And, and that's what the media knows. The media knows the majority of Americans are not paying close attention. And they can be easily misled. So when Chuck Todd says, go back to your liberal uh, – you know, I mean, I'm what did David say? The, you know, the biased – the uh, conservative bias kicker, whatever, whatever. There, there was a way I explained it. I mean, it was as insulting as he could. It would have been. I mean, I think Todd told people he graduated from George Washington. He didn't. He went to George Washington, and I think they gave him some sort of honorary degree at some point in time. But, um, but th- that's how do you refer to those people? You know, the the outcasts, the deplorables, and whatnot. But, um, but Senator Johnson basically said that you don't ever have me on to debate. You have me on to argue. And the, the the rare occasion that you guys invite me on, it's normally in a moment like this when you could try this moral equivalency argument of, well, remember what Trump did? Because at the end of the, uh, toward the end of the interview, he said, you know, are you ready to endorse Donald Trump or not? And if I'm, if I'm Johnson, I'm going like, look, man, why are you, why are we talking about Trump? You know, you had me on to talk about, you know, the, um, some of the subcommittee work we've done in regards to Hunter Biden and, um, and guys, this has never been about Hunter Biden. I mean, most Americans believe that there's no telling what Hunter Biden would do. I mean, if you ask anybody with a with a pulse and, and somewhat of an understanding and and an information level in American politics, hey, what do you think of Hunter Biden? Uh, they'd have a negative opinion. I mean, nobody in America that knows what they're talking about has a positive opinion of Hunter Biden. But but once again, Hunter Biden's never run for office. Hunter Biden's not in office. The, the, the debate is, can you connect, you know, the, uh, the misbehaving of Hunter Biden, um, the money trail of Hunter Biden to his father? That's always been the point. I mean, if we can't do that, there's no story here. If Hunter Biden gets paid $8 million to sit on the board of a Chinese energy company and there's no way to connect that money to his father, it's a bad move for the Chinese energy company. I mean, you and I both know there's got to be something there, but but we can't say that there is without some sort of legitimate proof. And I think Jim Jordan's beginning to put together, I think the, the, to find out that Biden was paying his father, Hunter Biden was paying his dad $49,910 to stay in a home that, that eventually we found out had classified information. I mean, the, the American public can understand that. It's not just a kid gone rogue, a kid gone bad, a kid with an addiction problem and a lifestyle problem and, you know, a, a, a do-nothing wannabe. I mean, they, you know, that doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it's not the story. I mean, the president can't hold, you can't hold the president accountable for the way his kids have misbehaved, can you? I mean, I hope not, right? I mean, there have been mm-hmm. a lot of American presidents who've had kids misbehave. That's not against the rules. That's not against the law. Right. That's kind of average American family stuff. Can't really control no, that. No, I mean, th- th- you can't hold Joe Biden, you know, accountable for what the, the antics of his son, however disgusting or disturbing they may be. But is there a connection between Hunter Biden flying on Air Force Two, engaging in some sort of business deal with the Chinese and Ukrainian government, receiving enormous amounts of money to do whatever it is they decided he could do, or was that the way to get to Joe Biden? I mean, it's easy to speculate. 
I mean, if there's a if there's a legitimate role for Hunter Biden to play in those industries, come up with it. I mean, I'm listening. I've not heard anybody try to say that, Rev. All I've heard the media say is Hunter Biden may be a deadbeat. Hunter Biden's got some issues, but you can't connect Hunter Biden to his dad. I mean, if Hunter Biden has made billions, or excuse me, millions of dollars off the family name, you you may not like it, but that's the way that game is played. But but the second you can connect one to the other, that's the second it becomes a bombshell. And and when you look at Trump, I mean, you know, the biggest difference to me in Trump is Trump's made money. I mean, he's lost money, but Trump's made money in his life. The only job Joe Biden has ever had, other than being in politics, is his time between being the vice president and running for president when he wrote several books. And I'm still sticking to my story about the. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I still believe this. I believe the documents were there. I think they were placed there for the ghost writers to write the books because Joe Biden doesn't have the intellectual capacity to write a book. He just doesn't. He's an intellectual lightweight. He's always been an intellectual lightweight. I mean, he's kind of been lunch pale Joe. Everybody kind of likes Joe. Nobody takes him serious, but everybody kind of likes old Joe. You know, moderate Joe from um from Pennsylvania, or excuse me, from Delaware. He rides the you know he rides the Amtrak. I mean, he's one of us. That's always been his shtick. But all of a sudden, the, the guy that you know we referred to as Lunch Pale Joe figured out a way to end up in a house that Dupont owned. He's got another two million dollar mansion, a beach home. Um, he's made enormous amounts of money. His brother is wealthy. His son is, well, if he's wealthy anymore, if it weren't for his lifestyle, his son would be enormously wealthy. So, so those are the questions that we're posing today. Can we connect Joe and Hunter Biden financially? Is there, is there a financial paper trail that shows the only reason Hunter Biden got this job or got this appointment or got this director or board seat is because of his dad? Not because his dad was the vice president and they just ceremonially like to, you know, to take care of American dignitaries, they expected something in return. And what did they get in return? I don't have any idea. What, what did Hunter Biden provide? What did Joe Biden provide to Hunter Biden that Hunter Biden provided to the Ukrainian government or the Afghans, the, the Afghans or um, I think Central America is involved in some of this. When you go back and read some of the books, I read excerpts from the book over the weekend. There was a couple of stories I read on the American conservative. And I mean, that's the story I told you that kind of echoed my belief that the documents were in the garage for the lawyer, excuse me, the ghostwriters to read. And that's the content of the book. And whomever they paid to ghostwrite the book that Biden took credit for. And, and we know Biden will plagiarize. He's done it before. I mean, he's, He's kind of pled guilty well, to being a you know a plagiarist, but um, you know we'll see where it leads. I don't have any idea what the connections are, but I think the revelation over the weekend that forty nine thousand nine hundred ten dollars was what Joe expected Hunter to pay to live in a home that we now know had classified information in. That's that's kind of a bombshell. Now, the media doesn't cover it that way. And the media are basically saying he shouldn't have done it, but it's nowhere near as bad as Donald Trump. When you lay Trump's financial life out in the open, I mean, it's confusing. It's probably corrupt to some degree. I mean, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt Trump had never leveraged, you know, local government, county government, city government, state government. I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt that a bit in the world. But I think there's a, there's a reality of how he got wealthy, right? 
I mean, he built some hotels. He built some resorts. He invested in some property. He built a building. He leased the building. Explain to me how Joe Biden became a multimillionaire. And I think Jim Jordan is going to ask that. I mean, Joe, or not to Joe, but somebody who's representing Joe Biden's interests. I think there will be a um, kind of a, a narrative. And that narrative will be, here's a guy who's never done anything but fleece the taxpayer to the tune of whatever senator's salary is at that time, and he ends up a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. His brother ends up a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. His son, despite not being in the best of states, ends up a multi-multi-how does that happen? Only in America can that happen when you sell political influence. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, I kind of want to go down this road, but I don't want to do it now because we don't have enough time. There, we had an interesting discussion uh, toward the end of last week about Reagan and, you know, conservatism and, you know, uh, communism and whatnot. And I made a statement that was not very popular in conservative <laughs> circles that Reagan, Reagan didn't deserve as much credit for ending the, um, the Cold War you said that. as he received credit for. And if you go back and read... I mean, it was guns or butter. There's a big debate about um, totalitarianism and, and communist regimes and whatnot. And you go back and look at Stalin and Gorbachev and Lenin and some of the other. I mean, Putin would have been a central figure in some of that head of the KGB. But I stand by my comments. I mean, when you go back and read uh, Chernobyl and, and what happened, I mean, it really and truly Reagan gets a lot more credit, I think, than he deserves. I think it was really the, the you know, the the capitalist-communist dichotomy. Um, the the communist government of, of Russia, and I want to do this a little bit tomorrow because I got some notes here that I prepared that substantiate or defend my point of view. I'm not saying Reagan doesn't deserve credit. I mean, please understand, Reagan was committed to build up the military and force a communist regime to, to spend, I mean, butter or guns. And the, the, the communist government did not, I mean, the consumable products, I mean, they just didn't invest in that. I mean, they imported the majority of that. I mean, every every spare dollar they had as a country, they invested in nuclear armaments and, and military equipment and arsenal. Um, but when you really go through the history, I mean, you, you could say that the um, leaving Afghanistan and, and how much, you know, trouble they had. Watch the movie Charlie Wilson's War. And you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, Afghanistan is known as the place modern empires go to die. And and when you think about it, we ain't fared so well in Afghanistan. You know, how many um, Americans have lost their lives and been maimed? And um, and how much money have we spent in Afghanistan? And is Afghanistan any better? I mean, is, is, um, is the Middle East more peace receptive and, and Democrat re- or democratic receptive than it was prior to, um, to you know, the, the Bush regime? And and some of the um and some of the expansionist doctrines of the American imperialistic dynasty, but uh, but I think when you go back and look, and it gets complicated, and I think we could have a couple of hour debate on um the role Reagan played, but but fundamentally was it capitalism and communism at odds with one another, and what led America to be able to build up its military the way he did? Uh, it was an expanding economy. I mean, it was tax receipts. I mean, it was some borrowing money, no doubt about it, and Reagan added to the deficit. But but the majority was the um, the economic theory that we ascribe to, and the the productivity that it allowed, and and contrast or juxtaposed to the communist government, and um, and Gorbachev basically at the end 
try to do kind of sort of what China's doing now, and that is merge capitalism and communism into one system of government, and it just didn't work. I mean, they were so uh, historically entrenched with communism. So, so once again, I'm not sliding Reagan. I mean, Reagan is my political hero, but I've heard it said a hundred times that Reagan won the Cold War. I think Reagan believed in capitalism. Reagan believed in limited government. I do believe that Reagan sincerely believed a strong national defense. You know, what was it? The best offense is a good defense or, um, you know, something to, to that effect. And I think Reagan fundamentally believed in that. But there were a lot of other historically documented things that happened in the in the USSR that, that I think led to more of its demise than Reagan's steadfast conviction to the American uh, military um, it was it was more Reagan's steadfast conviction to um, capitalism that I think led led down that road. I actually made a lot of notes, um, so some quotes that Stalin made, some quotes that um, Gorbachev made. Um, I mean, Stalin, I mean, it, it was guns or butter. I mean, it was are we going to invest in the military or consumable goods? And then they withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, Gorbachev tries this uh, communist slash capitalist society similar to what china's done today now how china's done it so much more effectively i don't know i I don't understand that i'm not a world historian nor am i a foreign policy expert but um but chernobyl in the mid 80s i think it was 86 or 80 or 87 that really eventually kind of led to the the soviet union's demise well it probably hasn't hurt that china has set them up as the manufacturing place for the world so they've got business you know, they're doing business with a lot of countries. They are, and, and they are an exporter of energy. I mean, they've always been a tremendous exporter of energy. Um, it's kind of, I wish I could find him. I may try to reach out to an historian uh, who understands, not Dr. Bold. I mean, the early American history is his forte. But I wish I could find somebody who was a very versed historian in the Cold War era. And I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat. I'm talking about an academic who's researched extensively what Reagan's role. Once again, I, I don't, I'm not saying Reagan, and I'm not trying to minimize his impact. I mean, I think Reagan sold the Cold War of the American public. We've got to reinvest in our in our military, you know, the um, the Carter Malays. I mean, he at least tipped the scale, right? Well, I think he had a lot to do with it, but yeah. I think Reagan, I've heard it said more than one time that Reagan won the Cold War. You've heard that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, historically. I believe that. That's kind of what he, I mean, I, you know, a majority of Americans do. I don't. I just don't buy that. And I'm as big a Reaganite as there is. Um, I'm torn between, this is pretty weird, but I'm torn between Reagan and Trump as who I think is the best president in my lifetime. Oh, yeah. I mean, I really believe that. Um, they, they were great in their own different ways. And, and, I, and I believed in some of the strategy Reagan employed. The, the point I'm trying to make out, at times, presidents get too much credit for bad things and too much credit for good things. A little bit like a quarterback on a football team. And I think when, you know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, I mean, that, 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 is a, um, that, that is a pronouncement heard around the world, and I think it was the, um, the solidification of America has won the Cold War, but I still believe if you dig in and you further evaluate, it's more economic theories that competed one with another, and, um, and when Stalin basically said, guns are butter, I'll take the guns, and he invested not in consumer goods, but rather the military, um, and communist nations don't expand their economies 
They don't produce tax receipts and revenues like communist nations do. Um, I, I think that was the great, uh, the, the great differentiator in who was going to win um, the Cold War or not. Once again, to, to build a military, it takes what? It takes money, right? I mean, it takes investing of, a lot of you know, whomever the citizens of said country are. And, um, and I think Russia failed to be able to invest at the rate America was because Reagan basically unleashed the power of the private sector. See, I hear someone saying, well, you're giving him the credit. Yeah, I'm giving him the credit, but I think the economic theory of capitalism is what allowed Reagan to expand or increase spending and expand um, the, ah, what am I trying to say here? The, uh, the effectiveness of the American military one way or the other. 843-661-0937 is our number. And I will say this, and this is a bit theoretical. I don't know that Russia ever was the geopolitical adversary that America has in China today, because once again, um, Gorbachev tried. And I mean, history shows this pretty clearly. Gorbachev tried the communist capitalist convergence. I mean, this kind of a hybrid between communism and capitalism, and it never worked. I mean, it just never worked. Why has it worked in China? Is it working in China? I mean, China keeps a lot of secrets. You know, they um they they misled the American. Excuse me, they misled the world about COVID. They misled the world about their 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 GDP growth. They misled the world about their unemployment rate. They misled the world about their one child child policy. Um, it's a dictatorship. I mean, they they can't they have the ability to mislead if they so choose. So nobody really knows exactly what the facts are on the ground in China. But it seems to me. From my study and research, take it for what it's worth, that they've done a better job of converging capitalism and communism. What Gorbachev tried to do, the Chinese have done much better. And I think had Gorbachev been able to, you know, marry ca- uh, capitalism and communism in a way that Xi and China have, we'd probably be living in a fundamentally different world and era today. But I think Reagan deserves a lot of credit the economic theory that is capitalism basically revealed its, you know, its, its, its masterfulness over communism. And that's why the Americans were able to, or, you know, the United States of America is able to say we were the ones that, um, that defeated communists. Excuse me. The, we're, we're the ones that forced the United, uh, the, what is the USSR, United Soviet, Soviet yeah, Socialist, Socialist Republic. Republic. Uh, there you go, Rip. You read that civics book, didn't you? <laughs> I remember. Back in the day. Yep. Did you put your book over your head, worried about Red Dawn? Sure thing. I mean, imagine that, guys. Imagine us putting a book the over our head drills. to protect ourselves from a nuclear weapon. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can remember as kids going, this book's thicker than that book. <laughs> I'll take my science book because it's thicker than my economics book. That There's a natural, beautiful innocence about youth mm-hmm. when you just don't flat out know any better. But... um. But it, it, I'd, I'd like to extend this conversation, and I may try to find a professor of history who has somewhat of a specialty. I'll talk to Bolton Marr when he gets here and see if he can point someone out at Francis Marion that has um, really studied this in an academic, historical fashion. But I did spend a good bit of time over the weekend because somebody Friday that I respect said, you really didn't give Reagan as much credit as he deserves. I said, I think I gave Reagan a lot of credit. I just think Reagan had the luxury of presiding over a free market economy when, you know, the, the Russian dictator, the Russian um, leader did not. And, um, and I just think once 
capitalism and communism are forced to compete against one another, communism is going to lose not some of the time, not most of the time, but rather all of the time. 843-661-0937. Got some trivia coming up in just a few moments. Um, If the phones are working. If the phones are working. I think we've had several calls drop in the last several minutes. I don't have any idea what's up. It kind of freaks me out because I'm prepared to do a show a certain way. I see the call come in. I can look through the glass, see the light flashing. So I know someone has called. I want to be respectful of the caller's time. We got this weird way of doing it. Cato, I mean, excuse me, Freehold answers the phone. Freehold relays the information to Rev. Rev kind of tells me, got a call. I mean, there's this um, body language without speaking that we exhibit one to another. And uh, when I see the phone ring, I begin trying to wind down my remarks so we can get to the call. Unless I'm rolling in high gear in midstream, it's hard to do that that then. But the last couple of hours, last hour and a half, we've had some issues with been, the phone. They've been a hit or miss. And it's, um, I mean, for whatever reason, a call will get through. And then two will drop, and then one will get through, and and two will drop, and we apologize for that. But um, that is completely and totally out of our control. We um, we're running a capitalist system here, and we think the phones are run under the um, the, the old USSR communist model. <laughs> Therefore, it. that has to be it. They're performing inferior to what the good old um, capitalist system would do. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one. 0937. We'll take our break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, one of the most encouraging parts of the weekend for me was, uh, and I'll step away from politics for a second, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that Clemson has made a commitment to become a basketball school. I mean, they lose to South Carolina in football. They lose to Tennessee in football. They beat Duke in basketball. I mean, they're leading the ACC. I mean, everybody's excited about going to Little John. So I think I can easily... <laughs> commit Clemson's future to being all about college basketball. Um, and I like that. I mean, you know, I really and truly do. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the Gamecocks upset Kentucky uh, midweek last week. Uh, I don't know the last time a basketball team in, in any division has wrapped a win over Kentucky and Rupp with home losses that total 84 points. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, how do you lose by 43 one Saturday? Go to Rupp, beat Kentucky. Now, granted, it's not the Kentucky team that makes a run at a national championship. This is a, um, but it's still Kentucky and it's still in Rupp. I mean, it's still Duke, it's still Cameron. I mean, if Clemson beats Duke and people say, and it's good a Duke team, I don't care. It's still Duke in Cameron. It's still North Carolina at the Dean Dome. It's still Kentucky at Rupp. Um, but, but the Gamecocks figured out a way to lose by 43 at home, go to Rupp, beat Kentucky, come home again and lose by 41. That's crazy. And um and Clemson looks good. I mean, they really and truly do in basketball. And Clemson good in basketball doesn't bother me anywhere near as much as Clemson <laughs> are good in football. In fact, I'll go. You ready? I think Clemson looks elite in basketball. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, think they, I yeah. think they look elite in college basketball. In <laughs> fact, I assume that um, you know, Clemson, Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, North Carolina. I mean that that's probably the um the message moving forward once you will lose once you lose your elite status in football it, it transfers to basketball it's hard to transfer it back from basketball to football especially uh, when you're an acc school so yeah <laughs> you know the best news i found over the weekend is clemson is officially now a basketball school <laughs> got a good buddy big clemson fan pulls for the 49ers i mean he's a huge clemson fan and a huge 49er fan and he reluctantly congratulated debo to me over the uh, over the weekend, Saturday night, he sent me a text. He said, "Man, 
nothing good comes out of South Carolina. But as a 49er fan, Debo might be might be the, the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, Debo's an electric, was an electric player, and still is an electric player. Uh, so yeah, uh, Clemson is now elite in basketball. They're officially a basketball school. I will uh, I will tweet that daily. Um, you know, I think it's hard for the fans to let go, like uh, you know the Clemson fan, to appreciate Debo at this point. When I went to the uh, bowl game, the Gator Bowl, uh, they showed some video. Of course, we were at the Jackson Jag- Jacksonville Jaguars stadium and they showed some videos of trevor lawrence as advertisements during the game and of course with all the gamecock fans there there was quite a bit of but but if you're a jaguar fan you know or if you're a 49er fan or if you're a cowboy fan it doesn't matter right i'm thinking about the the tiger that i have probably pulled for the most in the pros i was thinking about that talking about my 49er clemson fan who really and it goes back to dwight clark He's about my age and remembers uh, 49ers with Doc, Dwight Clark and became a, a 49er fan because of Dwight Clark. And he stayed a 49er fan. And, you know, Debo comes along and is really one of their um, elite playmakers, premier playmakers. And to watch him as a Clemson fan kind of, yeah, well, well, yeah, Debo's good, but he's still a Gamecock. You know what I mean? He's still, still a Gamecock and having that little fun back and forth. 843 um, 661 is our number. Uh, we can go and do our trivia We're going to try it. We'll yeah, see if we'll, the phone's working. We'll, we'll do this, and um, we're, we're going to try to do a trivia question. And if um, you called it with the right answer and you can't get through, we're sorry. Um, live ain't fair. 843 work. We'll make it up again sometime. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll try, try to make up maybe tomorrow and Friday. But um, here's the question. If the correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, couple that takes Mondays to make Friday, ah, wake up Carolina T-shirts. My mind went blank there. For a second, thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Today's cold. I mean, I'm on my third cup of coffee. Normally drink two. I'm on my third cup of coffee this morning. Who sells more coffee than anybody in America? 843-661-0937. Who sells more coffee than anybody in America? 843-661-0937. Is it an obvious answer? I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking the obvious is not the obvious okay. answer, so I've got my guess, and we'll go there maybe. See if this is right. We'll go to the phone. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Maxwell House. Nope, not Maxwell House. 843 This is a coffee retailer. I should have been clear. Um, 843 not a coffee brand, gotcha. coffee retailer. Well, it could be a brand, yep. but it is a retailer. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on. You know the Starbucks. answer? Is it Starbucks? Starbucks. Yep, you're right. 29061 billion dollars 30,000 stores around the globe um just wow is all i can say there's a starbucks on every street corner in new york and all are full you know i thought i thought that might have been a trick answer you're thinking duncan no i was gonna say starbucks is the obvious answer i was gonna say mcdonald's yeah mcdonald's is uh, i think number 11 duncan's number nine i got you the starbucks is number one who is this and where are you calling from hey this is robin and florence okay robert starbucks is the answer we'll get you back to freehold He'll get all your information. I mean, the company was founded in 1971, and annual revenues are $29.061 billion. <laughs> you know, number two, Panera Bread. Really? The second, okay. yes. Yeah, it's a headquartered out of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, number three, McDonald's. I'm sorry, you said, um, you, I, I told you they were behind Duncan. Yeah. They actually are not. Um, Lavazza, an Italian company. Tim Hortons, a Canadian company uh duncan brands annual sales 1.25 billion that's a massachusetts based company um costa a uk based company uh pete's coffee p-e-e-t-s 
Pete's Coffee House is a California company, Dutch Brothers Coffee, and then last, Caribou Coffee. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.